What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? How are you doing tonight? CSG is back, baby, and I'm excited to be back with my co-host, Joshua Davidson. Brother, how are you doing? What is going on? And what's up, bro? Like, how, how's your week? How's your weekend so far? And what's Oh, boy. Uh, my week was, uh, was all right. Uh, physically trying. I uh, had a, a really difficult time keeping up at work because it was very physically strenuous and I pulled a couple muscles the first day and then I had to do two more days of the exact same task and repetition on muscles that are already sore is mm. just kind of brutal, you know, yeah. uh, and so I had a very difficult week physically, but a lot of progress was made. And so I'm overall pleased with it, but I am so glad it's over now. Uh, but uh, Thank God, you know, huh? It was, a, it was a pretty slow, chill day today. Uh, so, you know, I'm doing all right. I keep uh, forgetting you have given up Mondays to go to work and exchange them for Saturdays. Has that been a good decision so far, or do you wish you could go back and, and redo that whole thing? Um, No. See, the thing was, it was the reason I had to change my schedule at all is because we have uh, a new team member joined my department so that I wasn't the only maintenance guy over all six buildings Yeah, because brutal. six facility buildings for one guy is just too much. Yeah. Uh, and so we have two guys now. And so in order to have continual coverage every single day, including weekends, mm -hmm. um, what they were trying to do was figure out how it was going to be that they could split the weekends. Uh, and it was going to be perhaps uh, every, every other month I would take, uh, the weekend and then the the next month he would take the weekend and I was like the inconsistency and shifting is going to drive me nuts let's just pick something right like right I can't deal with that and then they were like okay well you know we'll, we'll figure out what we can do I was like as long as I'm not expected to be here on Sunday because I won't be here um you <laughs> he know said, that's I, my Sabbath <laughs> right like I, I I can count on two hands the amount of times I've missed church in the yeah. last decade probably like I'm not nice you kick rocks, man. I'm not coming. Like, you know, so I, uh, I, I, you know, made a, basically made a decision that I would rather take Sunday and Monday to have mm -hmm. my consecutive days because my, uh, my, my counterpart, the other maintenance person, uh, has visitation with his kids on Friday or Saturday. And so those are the days that he elected to have Sunday, Monday are the days that I elected to have and everybody's happy. Um, it is a little disorienting to change a schedule though. You know, yeah. I'm a creature of habit like everybody else. And it just took a while to get used to really. I hear you on that. I hear you because I recently changed my schedule. You know, I'm working graveyards now and right. that's, well, that's a bigger shift than mine. I mean, yeah, you <laughs> did have to give up some days. I had to give up the complete schedule. Right. And so right. I worked days for the last, what, five, six years now. I mean, how long have we known each other? Seven five, six, seven years. And so yeah, ever since like I met you, I mean, I was on days and, and it's just been recently that I went to nights. And so it's brutal and I'm getting used to it now, but my daughter, I think is the one that had the biggest culture shock. So to say, whenever it comes to that, because she's used to going to bed, we're used to putting her to bed at eight 30, right? And now she's to get to stay up till two o'clock. She loves it right. Two o'clock in the morning. But 
it's it's just been a change but she's adapted really well to it and so i'm happy about that but guys thank you all for joining us josh uh man i, I feel so good to do another csg episode man i always i watched that intro and i saw where i had braided beard with uh brian wolfmuller <laughs> and just my long hair in the debate where we did uh with dane david Pullman and uh uh dan chapa over this faith precede regeneration and just i i, I yeah. like looking back on those memories man you know what i mean and so but thank you dude for joining us we got two guests uh with us tonight to talk about the old testament canon and so let me give a little background before i introduce my guests uh but guys i've been what or i've been reading uh my timothy michael law's book so when god spoke greek and man i just finished it the other day i just started on uh roger beckwith's the old testament canon in the new testament church in early judaism and so i finished when god spoke greek i just started roger beckwith's book and so bear with me if i'm a little behind so to say but when God spoke Greek came out and I think 2018, if I'm not mistaken, 2018, 2019 and Beckwith's book has been out since the 1980s. And so I think it's a little bit more modern and maybe a little bit more up to speed, but we'll see. We'll see if I change my mind whenever I read and I get done with Beckwith's book. Uh, but, but guys, Timothy Michael law has made some really interesting arguments that I wanted to bring a panel of people that hold different views about this. And so I'm convinced at this point. Now, again, we change our minds all the time uh, due to different reasons for changing our mind. Right. And so I wanted to share some of these reasons uh, that I have for accepting the fact that I think is a fact that the Old Testament church not only affirmed the Septuagint as scripture, but also other books that we would consider apocrypha. Right. And so I wanted to get a panel discussion uh, about this concept and, and really just dive into the subject. I love church history. I, I love Greek. So Greek and church history are probably my two favorite subjects whenever it comes to Christianity in general. And so I wanted to take a break from the Greek for a minute and jump into church history with at least one of my other favorite people, Dale Glover from Skeptics and Seekers, and a new face on CSG, Matt Hedges. He's a friend of a guest that we have had on for a couple times now on CSG and multiple times on Faith Unaltered, um, Matt Hedges. And so, guys, I'm excited to have you all with us tonight. Dale, we'll start with you. I don't think, I man, you've been on CSG before, but for those who don't remember you, give a little background about yourself. You're the host of Real Seekers. And That's just it. People about you, brother. Yes, yeah, so I'm the host of Real Seekers, uh, not uh, not uh, Skeptics and Seekers anymore. Right? <laughs> I used to be. I used to be the host. That was a good for, change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I used to be the host. So I started out uh, in 2018 as the co-host of Skeptics and Seekers with my atheist uh, partner, and every week we would get together and do like a debate uh, and and write out a blog on a given topic. Yeah. Um, and then in 20 uh, after about two to three years of that then i started up real seeker ministries um so pretty much uh, i'm the only host of that but uh yeah i'll, I'll do again various topics in-depth studies uh, on certain issues so i'll have series you know i'm famous for my shroud wars series where i go in depth on the shroud of turin and the my minimal relevant features uh approach for that um i have an existence of god series so things like the cosmological argument or the hiddenness of god for example i'm working on um but yeah and uh 
I am also the co-host of Theo Geeks with David Russell. So, yep. you know, once once every couple months or so, we'll get together and discuss like a, a Bible text or something like that. So, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. I got to ask, Dale, did real seekers stem from skeptics and seekers or was that something that was completely separate? Yeah, so so I had uh, a notion about being a real seeker in order for God. So this was an independent thing whereby um, I, in order for God to reveal the truth to people, the Holy Spirit, to uh, we have to be real seekers. So mm -hmm. number one, we have to be sincerely open-minded towards the truth. Number two, uh, we have to be actively seeking. We can't just sit on our, our rumps and wait for the truth to come to us. We have to be doing our best to find out the truth and number three we have to be willing to obey or act in accordance with that truth uh, upon discovery and if you meet those three conditions you're you're what i call a real seeker so okay. um it's kind of an independent idea yeah i like it i like it i know we were discussing that one night off air and and i really like the concept of of the real seeking thing i was just talking about the name so so i, I like skeptics and seekers right the name the name <laughs> not not the show <laughs> but but and you know why and so uh, but i just thought that maybe that had kind of influenced you or inspired you to come up with real seekers and so i i, I like the concept i like the name dale and i love you brother like ever since i met you i I've just been blown away by your shroud of turn stuff, like honestly, bro. And, and then uh, the conversation that you and I and David also had, who couldn't be with us tonight, unfortunately, he's got family plans going on. Um, but we talked with David Kimball Cook not too long ago, and and I'm really looking forward to continuing that conversation uh, with Doctor Cook. He's a he's a doctorate, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. And yeah. so um, if you haven't checked that out, please go. Uh, it's uploaded on Real Seekers. It's actually uploaded on Faith Unaltered too. But if you haven't yet, go subscribe to Dell's channel, Real Seekers. Awesome. If you want to know about the Shroud of Torn, Real Seekers is the place to go uh, for that kind of uh, biblical stuff. And so, Dale, I'm excited to have you with us. And our new face tonight, Matt Hedges. Sir, you were on Faith Unaltered last night. You're a friend of our friend, Jeremiah Short, the Black Doctor. And you are the author, or one of the authors, at the Solo De Soli Deo Gloria uh, blog. And so, Matt, it's always a honor to have new people on CSG. We're excited to have you here. And since you are new and people don't know you from this channel, go ahead, get take a little bit, introduce yourself and tell us what you are all about, sir. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, uh, I'm the main writer at Solideo Glory Project. Okay. I started the blog and so I write there very regularly. Nice. Um, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, uh, five-point Calvinist. I'm confessional. I'm creedal uh historic so i do believe in the value of the historic church and the creeds and the confessions and so i very much would uh say i'm traditionally reformed uh, i'm not a fan of modern evangelical uh interpretations of the term reformed in, in many ways um to be quite honest with you but and that's a whole nother issue in and of itself but on the stream uh as you can probably obviously tell i'll be defending the uh the 22 book canon uh of the hebrew bible that was the same that was used by the Jews and that was used by the reformers and by many of the church fathers. Right on, right on. Now we have a, so we have this notion about the whole 39 books. And I know what you mean whenever you say 22 books, but can you tell our audience what exactly do you mean by the 22 books of the Old Testament? Yeah, well, the 22 book canon is the same that was used by most of the Jews. With some exceptions, uh, we can find what the Jews used or viewed as canon. 
uh, through many, through quite a few different sources. Uh, Philo of Alexandria discusses the canon in uh, his writings. Josephus also discusses the canon. He's a well-known Jewish historian of antiquity. Uh, and probably the uh, most important passage, in my opinion at least, is found in the Talmud and the tractate Baba Batra, which has a section in which the rabbis give the list of the canonical books. And it's the exact same as that that the Reformed Church has always used uh, and still uses today. Okay. So the Jews typically, and Christ himself in the Gospel of Luke after he rose from the dead, divided the Old Testament into three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings, or uh, the Jews referred to them <clears throat> as the Torah, the Nevim, and the Ketavim. Mm -hmm. So the, there was like a threefold canon. And we can see that idea even in the uh, apocryphal books themselves, like the book of Sirach uh, has this distinction. So I would say the best book that I have been reading recently on this is by Lee Martin McDonald called The Biblical Canon, Its Origin, Transmission, and Authority. So I'd recommend that. And also uh, William Whitaker's Disputation of the Holy Scripture, which is a uh, amazing defense of the Reformed view. What was that last one? I wrote down Lee Martin McDonald. Uh, what was the name of the last one? Uh, William Whitaker. It's called A Disputation on Holy Scripture. So, so that's about that book's about 600 pages. So it's a big one. But and uh, but in that book, he it's a, it's split into like five or six parts. But um, it's really just all about the difference of differences between Roman Catholics and the Reformed when it comes to the Bible. And so he discusses, like, what's the authentic edition of Scripture? Is it the Hebrew Bible or the Septuagint? He then discusses what are the right, what is the real canon that the early church used? Okay. He talks about the perspicuity of Scripture. He talks about the authority of Scripture and then has another section where he talks about Scripture and tradition. So it's really a defense of Sola Scriptura, the Protestant canon, the Masoretic text, because that's what we generally have received as um, the best edition of, of the Hebrew Scriptures. So that's just a fantastic resource, and I use it very, very regularly when I'm discussing this topic. I will have to check that out. I know Beckwith yeah. is an Anglican, and so I know he's going to be arguing for Sola Scriptura, um, but more so against the, um, I guess, the critical ideology whenever it comes to it. So back in the day, for those who don't know, um, there was this in the Enlightenment period, right? Whenever it yeah. came to very, very beginnings of uh, textual criticism, they would, I mean, what what did they give? They said there was like two authors of Isaiah and, and, and just these different notions. It gave a very, very late date uh, for for the Hebrew canon. And so I think Roger Beckwith is going to be arguing uh, or what he's alluding to anyway, it seems to me that he's going to be arguing against that type of argumentation uh, since what he says, there's new evidence that's come to light. And so, like I said, I haven't made it through the book yet. Uh, I'm very, very interested in going through that. And so, but guys, uh, again, it's an honor to have Dale and Matt both with us. I know that Josh Sherman might be joining us a little bit later, and that would be really, really cool if he did. Uh, he was on Faith and Altars episode last night. And so, guys, basically what I've got here is so I've got a... I've got about six pages and I, I figured, I thought last night and I kind of did it off the spur, which I, I do apologize for. I should have never done that. Um, it, it, it was one of those momentary things where I just made a, a quick decision and I don't think I should have done that. Um, but I did it for this reason. I've got six pages of material here guys. And, and I think it's going to take a little bit to go over. And so if I'm wrong, great. If not, then, then I think this was a good decision. Maybe I went about it in the wrong way, but I, uh, David and I have talked uh, since then and uh, we, we are on good terms. So that's always a, a great thing, but 
I've got this, this paper broken up into about six different segments. And so what I was talking to the guys about last night before I jumped off was talking, going segment by segment. Let me finish. Let me do one segment, finish it up. And then we can have just an open discussion on this. Um, I'm not going to claim to have all the answers to all the questions that may be asked tonight. Maybe I will. I don't know. But uh, but we'll see. And so if not, I'll sit, give a simple I don't know uh, and then possibly ask some some questions myself about this. And with that, uh, I think let's just jump into it, shall we? Uh, like I said, I've got this broken up into six different segments. And if anybody from our uh, audience, so two things real quick. One, if you haven't subscribed to either the Complete Sinner's Guide or Faith Unaltered, guys, Faith Unaltered is literally 50 subscribers away from the 1,000 milestone. And so I'm encouraging everyone, if you have not subscribed to Faith Unaltered yet, please go subscribe to that. Uh, I, I love that channel. I, I think what David and I are doing there is very, very good. I think it's glorifying God. And I just, I, I want everybody to be, you know, to participate in that in some way. If you don't come on the show, great. So support us by subscribing and, and liking our content. That really helps us with the algorithms. And also please consider subscribing to CSG, the channel that we are on right now, because Josh is the main co-host of this. Since I've decided to go with Faith Unaltered, Josh has taken the reins on CSG and hosts some very, very interesting conversations uh, with guys like Chase Orozco. They talked about the narrative uh, well, they talked about his book, his fantasy book, right? And, and I know Josh has been diving into the narrative structure concept uh, that Jonathan Peugeot uh, tends to talk about a lot. And so good good stuff all the way around, I really think. There's a reason why we we clicked up with these guys the way we do, me and Josh and David and Dale. It, it, we just got some really good stuff that's hitting on all kind of fronts of Christianity. And so I'm I'm excited about that. Josh, is there anything before we get started? Is there anything you want to say about CSG since we are on your channel? Um, only that the uh, the the discussion on on Eden as a cosmic structure is technically still not resolved, and we need to do a part three. Uh, and I'm putting it Amen. out there so that if somebody hears this, they can hold me accountable to scheduling that. <laughs> what? But I clicked the wrong button. It. All right, right on, guys. All right, let's let let's jump into it then, shall we? So, in Timothy Michael Law's book, When God Spoke Greek, Law writes this in the following on pages 89 through 90. In a memorial passage, the Apostle Paul is said to remind Timothy that he had known from childhood the sacred writings, which the writer assures him were inspired by God and useful for his Christian formation, 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 17. But what were these sacred writings, and how would Timothy have known them? They were not the 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament. Timothy was not set on his grandmother's knees, reading out of the Bible published by the Palestinian Bible Society. At best, the Torah and the prophets had been treated as authoritative scripture by the 2nd or early 1st century B.C. But the status of other writings was still disputed, since there was uncertainty about which books should be in and which books should be out. It was also published or possible at that time that some would have considered other books, such as the ones now called apocryphal and pseudepigraphal, to have been sacred writings. We know this is the case at Qumran, where books of like Jubilees and Enoch were treated as authoritative scripture, and some works scholars have called rewritten scripture, who likely produced or who were likely produced to replace biblical books. 
As we noted already, the writer of the late first century Jewish apocalypse found in 2nd Esdras 3 through 14, also called 4th Ezra, claimed that there were many more writings that at least some Jews considered to have been useful for the same purposes for which Timothy was encouraged. This period of textual plurality and openness with regard to the boundaries of Scripture means that it is even likely that the earliest Christians considered books like Wisdom of Solomon and Ecclesiasticus as part of the sacred writings useful for Christian formation. Roger Beckwith agrees with Law on this disputation among Jews and the canon of Scripture as he writes the following in his book, The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church, and its backgrounds in early Judaism, quote, disagreement on the Old Testament canon goes back among Christians to the second century of our era and among Jews and Samaritans still further. The rejection of the non-Mosaic books by the Samaritans may have been a consequence rather than a cause of their rival temple, but even so, it had probably occurred by the end of the second century BC, the time when, so it now seems, their breach with the Jews became final and their distinctive editions of the Pentateuch was produced. Even before this, probably, pseudonymous Jewish writings, often of an apocalyptic character, were challenging for themselves the status of inspired books and were finding credence in certain circles. Again, in the rabbinical literature, it is related that a number of sages on internal evidence disputed the scriptural status, or at least the usability as scripture, of altogether five canonical books, Ezekiel, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Solomon, the Song of Songs, excuse me, and Esther. And some of these disputes can be traced back to the first century AD. Beckwith goes on to state that, quote, in the Christian church, controversy over the Old Testament canon arose in the mid-second century, when Marcion reached the whole Old Testament or rejected the whole Old Testament, and again at the end of the fourth, when Theodore of Mopsuestia rejected rejected certain of its books. However, the canon was not, in the patristic period, the subject of a great deal of controversy, though it was thought of in two different ways. From one point of view, the canon was a broad one, com comprising of all Jewish books, which were generally read in church for purposes of edification, and in this sense, the canon would always include more or less of the apocrypha and sometimes a few of the apocalyptic pseudepigrapha. From the other point of view, the canon was a narrow one, consisting simply of the books of the Jewish Bible, which scholars like Melito, Origen, Cyril of Jerusalem, Athanasius, Epiphanius, Gregory of Nazianzus, and Jerome took the trouble to distinguish from the rest as alone acknowledged to be inspired, though they too used the others for edification, and their distinction seems often to have been ignored. However, not only in patristic times, but throughout the Middle Ages, a learned tradition persisted, which excluded the Apocrypha from the Old Testament through the popular Bible, or though the popular Bible embraced them, end quote. Now, as we will soon see, however, I, I tend to disagree with Beckwith uh, whenever he claims that Melito, Origen, and Athanasius uh, affirmed a narrow canon of Scripture uh, to include Granted, it wasn't as broad to include all the extra-biblical works, but their individual list and quotes that I'll read here in a little bit do affirm that some of these works were cano canonical in these guys' eyes. So regardless, what is important at this point is to understand that during the time of the apostles, there were at least two, possibly three different Jewish traditions of the Hebrew canon. One, the Palestinian tradition. 
II, the Alexandrian tradition, and with the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1945, the Essenic tradition. And that's really where I want to begin the open discussion uh, part of this segment. So from my research, and guys, just jump in whenever you want to, but it seems that there is a dispute among at least the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees only affirmed the five books, the, the Pentateuch. There's not only that distinction, but the distinction between the Essenes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And not only that, but the Samaritans and the Jews in general. And so what are y'all thoughts on that? And, and, and do you see that in church history? Or is there something that I might possibly be missing uh, whenever it comes to those disputations? Well, it is certainly true that there was indeed disputes amongst both Jews and Christians as to which books were to be considered canonical. But uh, when we're talking about like the categories of canonical, not canonical, we need to recognize that there's another category in this, which is that a book can be, you know, uncanonical. It's not canon. It's not inspired, but it's edifying. Mm -hmm. uh, and should still, and sometimes they would even say should be read in the churches, just not considered on the same level with the rest of, of scripture. So that was a category, especially put forward by Jerome, uh, who, by the way, of course, agreed with the Protestant canon, as is well known. Um, I mean, he was he was kind of one of the first people besides Origen to really give us uh, textual criticism and the Latin Vulgate. So he's very much familiar with the disputes amongst the Jews much less the disputes amongst the Christians and uh, the manuscripts and everything. So I would say Jerome is definitely a trustworthy authority in the matter of the canon in the early church to begin with. But so those would be my beginning comments. But right on. Yeah. And, and and that's true. So absolutely, Matt. Um, I think even Athanasius in his 39th Festal letter separates right. those two categories and even a third category that he doesn't list, the apocryphal writings that, that are written up by the heathen. Right. And yeah. so there is that distinction in athanasius as well and so dell what are your uh what are your thoughts on it so far uh yeah so i obviously i do agree that there were these distinctions and debates within jewish circles obviously the sadducees the new testament itself tells us that you know they only accepted the first five books of um of the old testament and that sort of thing the the books of moses same with the samaritans they had their own version of the pentateuch and that sort of thing um i don't i don't think that this is a problem really though like i don't think that um this should be an issue for us as christians today to be worried about the sadducees obviously they denied things that the new testament um affirms are true so i, I think that if, if we're looking at any of the jewish groups and stuff like it would be more along the paul was a pharisee right so i think they would be right the first group to kind of look at what books did they accept and and stuff like that um but yeah for me it's not really a much of an issue what the the debates between the jews that doesn't really bother me in those days so you know dell i've had similar thoughts on that very thing that you just said well paul was a pharisee so maybe we should look at what the pharisees taught because clearly he brought some of that over like from him. I mean, Jesus even said to listen to the Pharisees, right? Just don't do what they do. Right. <laughs> and, and so there were things that the Pharisees were teaching. I don't know if the same can be said about the Sadducees or not. I, I, I don't know. All at this point is there is a distinction. There is a disputation among Christians, among Jews that, you know, well, what books do we count as scripture? And, and to really bring this full circle before we even really begin on it, that's where I wanted to go last night with this whole solo scripture debate. David and I were talking over the phone and it's like, 
how can we even begin to affirm Sola Scriptura if we can't even affirm what Scriptura is? You see what I'm saying? Right. And so I wanted to take a deep dive uh, really into this, you know, and, and if it takes a couple episodes, then so be it. But that's really my main motivations for for really diving into the Old Testament canon. And then I hope to be able to do the New Testament canon with David at a later point, since that's uh, that was his kind of or that was his uh, area that he was going to be talking about. But anyway, um, oh, yeah, go ahead. So, well, one thing I just want to ask you guys, because, again, again, I didn't yeah. know that today's topic was going to be the Old Testament canon kind of thing. So I didn't re research or refresh my memory on it. But from my from my understanding and remembrance the Jews kind of settled at the Council of Jamnia in, in 90 AD. They decided that they recognized the canon in the same way. Uh, is that not true or like? Well, most modern, scholars, yeah. most modern scholars reject the idea of a Council of Jamnia, and particularly Lee Martin McDonald argues pretty forcefully against it in his book. On yeah. The okay. So most, there are probably a couple of people still today who affirm it, but the vast majority of people are basically unanimous on it. That is, and, that it was not not legit and not okay. only that but in beckwith's book now grant again i haven't got all the way through it but he has made some initial comments that there's a dispute um even if it was a council or not it might have just been a gathering of elders to discuss academia kind of like what we're doing tonight and so there's that possibility but again i don't know the details on that i just know that that's what he had said uh so far in his book but josh is there any comments or thoughts that you have uh so far kind of introductory or I'm actually kind of I'm I I would say I'm I'm more struck with interest about the distinction between inspired and edifying, um, and and how those distinctions are actually drawn. I can't say that I know or understand how you would, let's say, discriminate between the two, um, the way that the early church probably would have. I don't know what criteria they would necessarily use to say this is inspired this is not inspired but is useful um i i mean i understand what edifying means basically you know uh of utility for bringing us up and instructing us in the faith or building our faith up or um you know strengthening our confidence in the faithfulness of god um or drawing us closer to one another and spurring us to good works and love those kind of things so obviously there are writings that would be good for things like that, that don't necessarily have to be considered inspired scripture. But I'm curious if uh, in, in your reading so far, you've encountered, uh, let's say, maybe a criteria or a description of how they would distinguish between those two categories uh, and, and why they why they would have come to the conclusion that they did uh, so that, that that I can understand a little bit better. Is that for me, Josh? Or uh, yeah, Anybody. It doesn't matter. I have not. Um, I, I think I see where you're going uh, with that because, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but Paul describes scripture as two things, right? One is theonustos, one is God breathed, and at the same time, profitable for equipping the man of God for good works, right? Right. For teaching, for correction. So it's both and. And if I'm, and your question is, well, okay, how can something be uninspired and yet still fall into the category of equipping the man of God for every good work. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, and, and you actually, that's exactly the, the thing I had in mind asking that is uh, the two things seem to me to be, um, you know, uh, like, like two sides of the same leaf, right? Like you have, you have the inspiration of the spirit 
And then you have the spirit using it to build the unity of those who are in Christ who have the spirit. And so it would seem to me like they would have a great interplay and, and their overlap would be kind of like this, like a natural overlap, you know, and, and I'm, I'm curious about a, ca a category of writings that are seen as, let's say, not inspired. And to me, I can't really distinguish that yet in my head from fraudulent. Uh, and yet somehow they're useful and do those things that are the work of the spirit. And so I'm just kind of curious as to like, how do we, how do we hash that out? Like what, what, what does this category actually mean? You know what I mean? That's a good question. Matt, do you have anything? Do you have an answer for that? Or Yeah, well, I personally have not come across anything either talking about like a distinction. Not, I mean, obviously we all read about distinction between canonical and uncanonical, but not a right. distinction between edifying and non-canonical. But I think one thing that we might say is that the apocryphal books are basically the ones that are to be rejected altogether. Whereas the non-canonical books are the ones that are not to be affirmed as inspired, but it nonetheless should be used for instruction in the same way that like you might, you know, think about like the Westminster Confession of Faith coming from a reform perspective. It's not inspired. It's not inspired. It's not infallible, but we still use it. So I think that might be that's probably uh, an imperfect analogy to kind of uh, describe sort of the, the distinction between non-canonical but edifying and or and just straight up apocryphal, which we reject altogether. Right. I guess in in one sense, I, I'm tr I'm having trouble here, guys. I'm not going to lie because I want to say just off on the surface that well maybe the non so the the inspired books whatever they say you know they're they're we have to accept right, but the non inspired books like the confessions right nobody no one here i don't think would say that the confessions are inspired theonostos god breathed words of god even though they come from the bible right Th these were written by fallible men granted that the bible was written by the fa by fallible men the difference is the holy spirit like peter says guided these men along in infallibility so to say right and so what they pinned is god breathed it's not it's inerrant it's it's infallible right even though it comes through the means or through the instrument of fallible men the confessions don't do that even though they claim and and i don't agree with every confession out there right this is why i say that but even though they cite scripture as you know for their claims so it, it on the surface i say all that to say this it almost sounds like you can reject the things that are non-inspired right but if you reject them how in the world can they equip you or or even be said to help the man of God? Uh, because the man of God, I mean, it's a broad category, right? It includes Roman Catholics. It includes Eastern Orthodox. It includes Protestants. It, and confessions are the thing that separates those groups, right, so to say. I know I'm a Southern Baptist, and, and we affirm the Baptist message, uh, message, yeah, the 2001. Uh, but, but <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, but I, I guess, I don't know. I'm just... I'm kind of stumbling here because that's a really, really good question, Josh. And I, I'm not sure how to answer it. Like I said, the well, surface. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, no. Uh, what, one thing I'm sort of thinking of now, again, I don't I don't know what the answer is because I'm kind of I grew up Baptist and I just have my straightforward. I have 39 books in the Old Testament. Those are the inspired documents type thing. Yeah. But Paul does Paul himself in inspired New Testament literature quotes from apocryphal things. So there, there could be. I, th I think it's the book of Enoch and somewhere else or something like that. Um, so he does 
quote, there could be true things in these apocryphal books and they're not inspired per se, right. but it'd still be edifying and, and yeah, right. So may, maybe something like that. I, I don't know. In fact, even at the time of the reformation, uh, you had Cardinal Cajetan, Thomas Cajetan. This is a significant figure because he was actually one of Martin Luther's early opponents, but yeah, he actually rejected the apocryphal books. Like he did not agree with the Roman Catholic canon. The same canon that was affirmed at the Council of Trent, Martin Luther's own opponent didn't agree with. He based, he he agreed with the way that the Protestants viewed it, which was that uh, they were apocryphal, they or that they were not inspired, I should say, but they were still edifying and could still be read in the churches. Mm -hmm. So I guess maybe that would be the difference, Josh, is that the non the non inspired versus inspired doesn't maybe have so much to do with equipping or, or or profitable even for the man of God. Maybe it has to do with the source of these books, right? Of these, uh, what I mean, whatever you want to say, you know, whether it's the catechisms, whether it's the confessions, however you want to put it, right? Maybe it's the source that is the, the, the dividing factor there. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I would just be curious if anybody who's listening can put in the comments a resource to uh, perhaps enlighten me a bit further because my curiosity can be, uh, let's say, uh, insatiable sometimes. But I, I, I'm I'm looking to to understand better because I don't know yet how it would be retroactively that somebody in the first century would look back toward the books that were scribed prior and say inspired, not inspired, inspired, not inspired, useful, but not inspired, that kind of thing. Right. There has to be a criteria by which it can't just be an arbitrary declaration. Uh, and I don't believe that this was just the product of a private prayer closet conversation with God, right? That's not impossible, but I'm, I, I just feel like there's something missing that could really be informative to what it is that we're trying to understand now. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Um, so anybody who has, uh, any resource that they know about, go ahead and leave it down in the comments. Cause I, I am definitely, uh, uh, looking to, to close that gap. Absolutely. Uh, but I, I, I think I understand more, perhaps, uh, that, that was, that was a useful analogy with the confession, Matt. I understand, I think what you mean by, uh, edifying or useful, but not inspired. Um, you, you know, like there commentaries can be this, right? Like I have, I have a lot of Warren Wiersbe commentaries. I like, I like his writing style. He's kind of like a pastor's pastor, you know, like that. I like that style. I like the way that he, he summarizes things. He's got a, 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 a writing style that's really compatible with my reading style. And so I enjoy that it's useful for me, but I don't ever just go off of what he says and be like, Oh yeah, this is, this is it. Like, this is, you know, this is correct. This is the infallible word, right? It's like, I, I think, this breeds another question in my mind and maybe we can shelve it for a moment and come back to it. But I I'm interested about, you know, perhaps what we mean by the word of God. Uh, also, uh, we have had a previous discussion with uh, our friend Joshua Sherman about this before about the, the word of God and that being a referent, not necessarily to the text, but to the person of Christ, the yes, word the of God, you know, so, logos, yeah. uh, and so it, perhaps, that's something my intuition would tell me that the the books that make reference to the coming messiah uh that are let's say fulfilled in christ would be something that i think would be bringing about more of a uh of a like this 
you know, being inspired. Obviously, this this didn't come from man. They didn't make this up. And Peter talking about the prophets not coming up with these things on their own and being yeah. guided by God and so forth. So that that might be something to do with it. But you know, like I said, we can we can curb that and come back to it. I don't want to take you have you have five more sections of your presentation to go through. So no, it's I don't fine. Get caught up for too long. Well, that actually reminded me. I don't remember who. If I if I come across it again, I'll post it in the description, and Josh, I'll send you a link. But that was one of the distinctions um, between, or, or how he classified it as inspiration is basically that it was a prophecy from the Messiah or about the Messiah or the law of God. Right? Those were the two categories that was um, to be classified as inspired. Now, granted, I don't know where that would leave the. I mean, granted, there are some you know, messianic prophecies in the Psalms, even in the Proverbs, right? There's e there's either direct prophecies or allusions to the Messiah in those writings, right? I could think in addition, there, there I'm pretty sure it's, it, it, you would have to include the fact that Jesus explicitly taught from or quoted a particular book of the scripture that would give a certain right. level of credence in my mind also to sure. say Jesus taught from the book of Isaiah, right? It was like, obviously that was the thing that I think he taught more than anything else from what I know, yeah. right? Like the book of Isaiah is probably the centralized example of something that is obviously inspired. It shows that right? in history too. That was the one book that was agreed upon among everybody. Like even, like even the distinctions I made beforehand in the intro of the show, that was the one book. If there was a couple more, but that everybody agreed on was uh, Isaiah. And whenever they found the Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls in Qumran and back in 1945, I think it was, that was just like, Case mind closed. blown. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Dale? Well, yeah, I was just going to kind of uh, back up Joshua because I remember Dale Allison. He has a whole chapter in his book, Resurrecting Jesus, where he's talking about Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. And he does confirm the kind of the same the, that threefold distinction like the pharisees do and stuff so i think you'd be more in line with them than other jewish group, groups like the essenes or the sadducees and stuff right the law the the writings and, and that and the um prophets kind of thing right so he's adopting that kind of breakdown so that might provide us with a clue as well that he leans more towards the scriptures that the pharisees yeah. would have had in mind yeah so just to clarify, I suppose the three things that we just came up with uh, in our in our musings just now would be it containing the law, containing messianic prophecy, or was referenced and or taught of by Jesus himself. The right? only reason I have a problem with that is because if we're going to say if Jesus referenced the anything, right? And this could even include Apocrypha, which I believe he did include <laughs> some of the things that we would consider Apocrypha now, right? But what about Paul? Paul reference, and I know David Russell would say this, right? But Paul referenced atheistic philosophers back in the day. Does that mean their writings are inspired? No, I don't think so, right? But well, that's why I was saying Jesus taught out of it. Okay, Paul referenced it uh, because the apostles, you know, like like you said, they're fallible men penning things, being led by the Spirit of God. Jesus yeah. was a unique case, being an infallible man, and being led by the Spirit of God. Right. And so and, that's why I would include that rather than just explicit mentions from quotations that Paul might have given uh, in 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 Acts 17 or whatever. Right. Where right. you have these these things where he's saying, like, even your poets say, I don't think he's saying that the poets are inspired. No, um, I think maybe those poets could perhaps fall for Paul in that instance under that separate category of not inspired 
not scripture, right. however, momentarily useful or ongoing useful, whatever kind of edifying. And, I think it was the the, the language that we were using before. Yeah. Um, and, and noticing that I think it has to do with the difference between truth and utility. Right. I think the edification thing isn't a good enough standard because it's too much like pragmatism mm -hmm. rather than like like truth. You know what I mean? Right. No, yeah, I agree. I, I agree. Go ahead. I noticed um, the talk about the Septuagint. I wanted to ask Tyler in particular, uh, yeah. do you believe the Septuagint to be like a more authentic version of the Old Testament than the Masoretic text? That's a good question, because from what I've read, there were so it's not just the Masoretic text that was going around in the first century. Scholars have said there may be even up to three Hebrew texts that disagreed with each other in various places. Now, granted, the message, I think, is the same. Right. Yeah. But yeah. we do see where the Septuagint and even um, oh, Theodosian. Right. Those were two distinct Greek texts yeah. that were going around. Yeah. And so to label it, you know, just the the and also Aquila and uh, Symmachus, right? Or Origen had his hexapla where he like compared five different versions of the Old Testament. Exactly. And so I know some church fathers, and maybe it was <clears throat> even Augustine, that said that the Septuagint was now or like a new word of God or something like that. Um, but it, do you I have, have a citation? I, I can find it for you and send it to you. Yeah, please do. I'd be interested in seeing that. Absolutely. But one argument is so I obviously I hold to the traditional more reformed view, which is that the Masoretic text is a much more reliable text, and the Dead Sea Scrolls just further confirm that. Mm -hmm. uh, for example, the Great Isaiah Scroll in the Qumran documents agrees like over ninety percent of the time with the Masoretic text in its distinctive readings. I mean, that is amazing agreement for for two manuscript traditions. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, strictly speaking, the the biggest representative of the Masoretic text is the Leningrad Codex, which is from the 11th century. It's the Middle Ages. Right. And yet we see a manuscript that's a thousand years before that, Isaiah Scroll from Qumran. They both have such um, just amazing agreement with one another. That is one argument in favor of the Masoretic text. Another thing would also be um, when we recognize that the most distinctive feature of the Masoretic text were the vowel points uh, in the Hebrew. Mm -hmm. And while most modern scholars today uh, reject the antiquity and inspiration of the vowel points, almost all Jews and Christians up until the Renaissance in the 15th century affirm them to be inspired. And afterwards, the English Puritans and Reformed theologians also affirm them to be inspired and defend them as a part of the original Hebrew given either to Moses or to Ezra. To Ezra and the, men, and the men of the great synagogue. Either way, they were inspired and original, and we should accept them. I think no one denies that the vowel points are, because um, this is a really interesting debate that happened like immediately following the Reformation. There was a lot of dispute between uh, some of like the Hebraists in the Protestant churches as to whether or not these vowel points were inspired. And I have a very, very long article in my blog where I summarize the case for it based off of a few books I, and papers I read on the subject. Nice. So can you send can, that to me? Yeah, uh, you can like put it on. I don't know how it works on StreamYard where you put a comment up on or a link up on the screen. But um, yeah, if you look over to your right, you should see where it says like comments and private chat. Yeah. You click the comments and then you can post it for all. We'll all see it. And then uh, the uh, our listeners will see that as well. So if you want to post it there, you can. Yeah, I did that. Um, so, but yeah, but, I mean, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, well, one thing I would I would add is uh, yeah. I think Christ, I mean, 
the Val points could very much be related to the question of the canon because if the Val points help prove the Masoretic text reliability, then by extension, we could say that the Masoretic text's canon was likely reliable as well. Now, that is a bit of a stretch, to be fair. But I do think that when we get like into this, the general specifics of the Masoretic text, and if this represents the original Hebrew Bible, which I believe it does, mm -hmm. um, I, I'm more, I'm very much more traditional in my view of textual criticism. So I'm not a King James onlyist, but I do believe in the Byzantine text um, as well as the Masoretic text today. I've so. I've seen some very interesting arguments because the one of the most common things you hear now against the Byzantine text is the subtraction of the common Johannium. Right. Yeah. And I've actually heard people argue that, no, that was taken out earlier and it was originally in the uh, the original autographs. And so yeah. I don't. Is that where you stand? Uh, I don't know. I feel like okay. that would be a stretch. I do believe that the longer ending of Mark and the story of the woman caught in adultery were, were original, though. There's okay. a very, very good case to be made for those for those things. Right on, right on. Well, this is great because I think it leads really, really well into my next segment. And so to start that, I want to ask you a question, Matt. So the Hebrew Bible, there, I think that there was, let's break it down like this for just clarification. Granted that this, it goes beyond this, I think. Like I said a while ago, there was at least, I think, three, three different traditions of the Hebrew Bible that was going around in the time. We have at least two that, that the early church fathers quote from the Septuagint and uh, uh, Theodosian. And so my question is, whenever we look at the quotations from the New Testament authors, right? is there, do you see, because David and I were talking about this, is it like a fifth, because we see them quote from the, the Septuagint. There's just no doubt about that in some of these instances. Yeah. But is there a more so that they quoted from the Septuagint than they did the Hebrew text, is it more of a 50-50 split? Or where do you see that coming into this conversation at? They quoted from the Septuagint a lot. And so my assumption is they use the Septuagint, right? And yeah, we know well, Mark did. And so go ahead. Well, the, it was it was kind of a 50-50 split. They okay. did use the Septuagint many times. That's undeniable. No one questions that. But they did also sometimes go against the Septuagint. So Okay. Okay. So I guess that would be where where I would maybe push back on the Hebrew is that where these texts differ at, and, and some of them do drastically would, and, and given Josh, what Josh said about Jesus quoting and, and Paul and, and all these guys, what, if that was the inspired text, then why would they quote something different from that text? Does that make sense? Yeah. Well, I think it also could be because the Septuagint was in standard usage among many of that more Hellenistic influenced Jews of that time. Right. I mean, we, we know that. Um, but I doesn't but I think we should recognize that when we're talking about like the standard received text of the church, this is something that's be not to like one particular time period, but rather with all of the history of the church. That's that's one reason why that's like one simple argument why so many accept the Byzantine text is because this was what the majority of the church used. Yeah. You know, they weren't using I mean for hundreds of years, Christians believed these things like the longer ending of Mark and the, the pericopi adulteri, as it's called. Uh, they believed these were inspired original parts of scripture. We have quote, we have parts where the church fathers quote these passages as scripture mm -hmm. and use them in their arguments against the heretics, which shows they viewed it as inspired. So when we're, so I think that goes back to saying when we're talking about the text and canon of scripture and we should look, we should bear this in mind of the background of the providence of God that he will preserve his true word. 
and that the church, that, that the majority of the people of God will recognize that word. I mean, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that's actually, that's one thing that um, is relevant to the question of like a self-authenticating canon, which I very briefly mentioned in last night's stream. Mm -hmm. And so I think that'll be very, very good if we could get into that, because that's, I think that's a very much neglected uh, aspect in the canon and sola scriptura debate. Okay, right on. Uh, before we do, Josh, Dale, is there anything that you guys would would like to add? I mean, my next, so I'll put it like this. My next segment is more of like a fun fact quotes and or well not quotes exactly we'll get into the quotes here in a little bit but theological concepts and phrases that are found in the septuagint that actually f helped form i believe in the, the new testament and so josh or dell is there anything that you guys like to add uh to what matt said before we jump into that just that i wish sherman was here yeah that'd be nice <laughs> that's all you got so concerning uh, <laughs> the new testament quotations of the apocrypha there are like a couple examples of this. Mm -hmm. uh, the one, the probably most well-known example is uh, in Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 11, uh, the writer of Hebrews, whoever that might have been, the apostle Paul, Barnabas, you know, there's dispute about who wrote Hebrews. But According to tradition, it was Paul. <laughs> right, that's correct. And even <laughs> Roman Catholics are actually bound to believe that because the Council of Trent claimed that it was Paul. And that's right. for them a binding council. So, right. And, but that is also what Protestants also believed uh, for a while, up until higher criticism. Sure. But um, the thing is about, uh, what was I going to say? The, the thing is about like the New Testament quotations of the Apocrypha. Uh, we do know examples of this. Uh, in Hebrews 11, um, the writer quotes, or he doesn't, well, I wouldn't say quote, but he alludes to a, the story of the Maccabean martyrs. Mm -hmm. which is found in second Maccabees. And I believe it's chapter seven. And it's the story of, you know, the woman and her seven sons who are martyred uh, under the tyranny of Antiochus for Epiphanes, which is what caused in his rule and his persecution against the Jewish people is what started the Maccabean revolt, which is what's recorded in first and second Maccabees. So those are what those two books are all about. What led the high priest Mattathias to revolt against Antiochus and, uh, and start this revolt and start the Jewish uh, revolt against them. And then that basically led into the, that was right in the middle of the period of second temple Judaism. And uh, he quotes from it, and, but that does not mean he viewed it as inspired because like you said earlier, uh, you know, Paul quoted the pagan philosophers at Areopagus in Acts 17. He certainly did not view people like Euripides and the philosophers. He quoted them as being divinely inspired. They were pagans for goodness sake. Right. Um, but uh, but to even uh, break it down further, it's not a direct quotation of it, but rather an, an allusion to it. And like we said earlier, um, I, I would posit that the Maccabean, the books of the Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, I know there's the third and fourth Maccabees, but very few churches today, except the Eastern Orthodox, consider those to be canonical. Even the Roman Catholics agree with us in rejecting uh, third and fourth Maccabees. For, but first and second Maccabees are a great... Um, summary of what happened with the Jews under uh, the Seleucian Empire and the Maccabean Revolt, which is an important time in the history of the people of God. And so in that sense, the, the books of the Maccabees are edifying and we should read them because they give us this history, but we don't consider them inspired because they have not, uh, for one thing, they do not bear what uh, the church fathers and reformers called the marks of divinity. Uh, which is a very, very key aspect, is that the canonical books, those are inspired by God, have a self-authenticating way, whereby through the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit, uh, we perceive that they are from God. 
Uh, the books of the Maccabees don't have that, but nonetheless, they are edifying. And so it's reasonable, obviously, for an inspired writer like the writer of Hebrews to quote from them because uh, he's talking about, you know, the, the chapters was famously known as the Hall of Faith, Hebrews 11. There's, you know, uh, the reference to Abraham, Moses, Joseph, all of the Old Testament patriarchs and saints of the Jewish nation and the Jewish church. Uh, and so it's fitting that he would quote um, or allude to Maccabees in that context, but that doesn't necessitate him viewing it as inspired. Mm -hmm. What do you think about Augustine uh, viewing First and Second Maccabees as inspired? Yeah, well, he is probably the exception. Uh, he didn't. It is. He, it is true. He didn't view most of the apocryphal books as inspired. Um, there are some who have argued, however, that he like you know thought there were that you could use the word canonical in different senses. Uh, okay. William Whitaker actually discusses that in um, his disputation. So I can read what Whitaker says on this if you want. Please. Please. Okay. Let me uh, let me pull it up here. It might take a second. So no, that's fine. Josh uh, or Dill, do you guys have any thoughts while uh, Matt is looking that up? Because I'm actually looking up a uh, a passage as well. So what's the so what is it? The, the question here, Dell. If you ain't paying attention, brother, I can't repeat it for you. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I had some, I'm sorry. I love no, you, dude. I asked Matt what he thought about uh, Augustine and uh, oh, affirming First and Second Maccabees as uh, canonical. So I'll be yeah. honest, I, I'm feeling kind of left out in the show. Like I, oh, I had no. no idea that Augustine even said that. Um, but again, again, like I, I'm very simplistic in the, like Augustine said a lot of things I disagree with. You know what I mean? So uh, you definitely like, are not like infant baptism. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> like infant baptism. Definitely. I'm credo Baptist. Uh, yeah. yeah so, you should be, you should be paid but that's another story. Okay. Yeah. Well, I remember you guys, were, you guys were kind of making the case there. So yeah. Um, so as to why Augustine, like I haven't read what he says about it. So like, I would need to know like, what are his reasons? Does he provide any reasons or does he just assert this? Um, but e either way, um, well, like I said, I don't, oh, the passage is from city of God and I, I, I can't tell you a chapter or anything like that because whenever I it's read book this, 17, is it book 17? That's okay. where he discusses the canon. Okay. I know he's talking about the martyrs, and I know second Ezra or fourth Ezra is the topic. He says this. He said, these are held as canonical, first and second Maccabees. These are held as canonical, not by the Jews. And this is where it blew me away that he would say something like this. And this is why I believe that it's in the inspired sense and not some you know ecclesiastical or, or, or just edifying sense. But he says this, quote, these are held as canonical, not by the Jews, but by the church on account of the extreme and wonderful sufferings of certain martyrs who before Christ had come in the flesh, contended for the law of God, even unto death and endured the most grievous and horrible evils End quote. And so because of that separation, right. And, and we know Augustine and I keep fluctuating because I don't know what to call him. Okay. Augustine, Augustine, whatever people have their, <laughs> have their favorite. But, but the point is, is that he distinguishes between the Hebrew canon at this point. These are not held as canonical by the Jews, but by the church. And mm -hmm. that, guys, just says a lot to me um, whenever it comes to this subject. So that, so that's interesting because from my from my understanding, again, just based off memory, because I, I haven't prepared at all, but I thought since the time of the Latin Vulgate, that the majority opinion was, okay, this is now, the, the Hebrew canon is the official canon. So like, Augustine is kind of going against the grain. Is that correct? Or well, I'll put it like this, and we're going to see this here in a minute. But throughout 
church history, even even up till today, there hasn't been an acceptance of the canon. And what I mean by that is universally, right? There have always, always, even today, I mean, just look what we've been talking about so far, the Roman Catholics, the Eastern Orthodox, Protestants, whatever in the world original Protestantism was. Like, I don't even know what that was. But there has always been disputes among Christians about what books should be in the canon and what books should not be, and or, or what books are inspired by God and what books aren't. And so that was the thing that I wanted to bring to the table uh, the most. If anything, if anybody takes anything away, there's not a set, you know, tradition, so to say. So that's just my was, thoughts on it, Dale. But, okay, so but my my follow up question though, like, wasn't yeah. he he was the minority? Of course, there's always one person who's going to disagree, but he was the minority at this time. Is that correct, at least? Or Augusta? I would say I would say so. If you look at which we should get into this earlier later in the stream is go through these canonical lists because we have a ton of them where the we church do. fathers individually will like list the canon. I think probably the most significant one is Melito of Sardis mm -hmm. because Melito says that he went into the east and tried to do um, he tried to do like the best work he possibly could to figure out which books were accepted as the canon. Yeah, and he agrees almost entirely except for one book with the Protestant canon. The one book that he leaves in there that Protestants don't is the Wisdom of Solomon, yep. which some even have actually argued that the Wisdom of Solomon is just another name for the book of Proverbs. I personally don't think that's probable because uh, Melito lists Proverbs and Wisdom of Solomon. So why would he list the same book twice right. in a row? That wouldn't make sense. But nonetheless, 90, so like 95% of Melito's canon, and Melito is late second century, around, around the year 180. All right, mm -hmm. that is early, early testimony. Uh, he and the majority of it is in a perfect agreement with what the Reformed churches have taught. And that's the same thing also goes for Epiphanius. Actually, and actually, Epiphanius and Jerome are exactly uh, to the book as what the Protestants uh, view today. So, but another thing uh, I wanted to get into about Maccabees, um, it was actually ironic that though Augustine did uh, appear to view them indeed as canonical inspired, uh, a bishop of Rome, Pope Gregory the Great, rejected the books of the Maccabees. Right. I mean, that's just ironic. You know, you think that the uh, the Roman Catholics, uh, because of their doctrine of the papacy and infallibility, uh, would accept uh, whatever the Pope has said about the canon, which he did define in the late fourth century over Pope Damasus. Mm -hmm. But uh, Pope Gregory the Great, in Book Nineteen of his commentary on Job, explicitly says that uh, the books of the Mac the books of the Maccabees are not canonical yet brought out for the edifying of the church. Those are his exact words. So uh, that's that's a Bishop of Rome's testimony. I mean, right. you, you don't really see, um, I haven't seen a lot of Roman Catholics really address that particular point. But uh, regarding um, Augustine, oh, I got that thing from Whitaker pulled up, which I can read now if you want to. Yeah, before you do, I just want to say this to my co-host that's not on here, but watching. Bro, David, if you can be watching, you can be on here. So shame on yeah. you, sir. Anyway, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so... All right, this is a little bit long, so prepare yourselves. Yeah, go ahead. But uh, this is Whitaker's words. Augustine, in that same place, I think referring to City of God, uh, mm -hmm. plainly indicates that he cannot, he did not consider those books, the the apocryphal books, of equal authority with the rest. For he would, he for he distinguishes all the books into two classes: some which were received by all the churches, and some which were not. Then he lays down and prescribes two rules: one that the books which all the churches receive should be preferred to those which some do not receive, the other 
that those books which are received by the greater and more noble churches should be preferred to those which are taken into the canon by churches fewer in number and of less authority. It will be best to listen to Augustine himself, whose words are these. This is from Book 2, Chapter 8 of his uh, Treatise on Christian Doctrine. So we're listening to Augustine now. Quote, now, with respect to the canonical scriptures, let him follow the authority of the greater number of Catholic churches, amongst which indeed, amongst which those indeed are to be found, which merited to possess the chairs of the apostles and to receive epistles from them. He will hold this, therefore, as a, therefore, as a rule in dealing with the canonical scriptures to prefer those which are received by all Catholic churches to those which only some receive. But with respect to those which are not received by all, he will prefer such as the more and more dignified churches receive to such as are held by fewer churches or churches of less authority. Then follows immediately, now the whole canon of scripture and what we say, in which we say that this consideration hath place, etc. Hence then I draw already an easy answer. We with Jerome and many other fathers deny these apocryphal books to be canonical. Augustine with some others calls them canonical. Do then these fathers differ so widely in opinion? By no means, for Jerome takes the word canonical in one sense, while Augustine, Innocent, and the fathers of Carthage understand it in another. Jerome calls only those books canonical, which the church always held for canonical. The rest he banishes from the canon, denies to be canonical, and calls apocryphal. But Augustine calls those canonical, which, although they had not the same perfect and certain authority as the rest, were wont to be read in the church for the edification of the people. Augustine therefore takes this name canonical in a larger sense than Jerome, but that Augustine was not so minded as to judge the authority of all these books to be equal is manifest from the circumstances that he admonishes the students of theology to place a certain difference between the several books to distinguish them in the classes and to prefer some to others. If his judgment of them all was the same as the papists contend, such an admonition and direction must appear entirely superfluous. Would Augustine, if he had held all the books to have an equal right to canonicity, have made such a, dis uh, such a distribution of the books? Would he have preferred some to others? Would he not have said that they were all to be received alike? But now Augustine does prefer some to others and prescribes to all such a rule for judging as we have seen. Therefore, Augustine did not think that they were all of the same account, credit, and authority, and consequently is in open opposition to the papists, end quote. So those are the words of William Whitaker, uh, and I'm going to just post in uh, the private chat here the link to Google Books where, you, where the entire book by Whitaker is found. It was He was a Puritan theologian, so this is coming from like the late 1500s. Right uh, so this is this is probably, in my opinion, the, the best defense of the Reformed view on, on Scripture, the Apocrypha, Sola Scriptura, Perspicuity, all the things we've discussed in this stream and in the stream last night. It, it's like it's a goldmine of a book. Awesome. I appreciate that, Matt. And just for our audience sake, so you know, uh, the the link that Matt just sent to me in the private chat or to us in the private chat, I just posted in the comments. Josh, I know you have something and I've got a couple questions as well uh, for that quote. Go ahead. I, I was actually going to I was actually going to ask two things. Mm -hmm. First, what was the, the phrase you used for the internal um, internal testimony of the Holy Spirit? There you go. So, uh, so that was that was something that was perceived by the 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 reader, right? To right. say, ah, this is inspired. I can feel the spirit's movement in this text, or something according to that, right? Right. Okay. Uh, and then the second thing was, um, I I forget the name of the early uh, the early church writer that you had mentioned had a uh, a list of canon that was almost exact the same as the Protestant uh, canon. What was Melito that? Melito of Sardis. 
Do you have do you have any uh, reference material for that? Yes. Uh, in fact, all of these early lists are found in Lee Martin McDonald's book. That really is the definitive text on the canon. But it's actually given from a secondary source by Eusebius, who is one of the early church historians. So I would I'm going to post the following citation in the chat. It's um, Eusebius's uh, church history, uh, and it is Book Four, Chapter Twenty Six, Sections Thirteen and Fourteen. So if you um, look up Eusebius, his church history on the New Advent website, which has all the writings of the church fathers and historians of the church. Uh, you should find it very easily if you follow the um, citation. But he quotes Melito of Sardis there, giving the canonical book. So we're trusting what Melito of Sardis's canon was on the basis of Eusebius. And Eusebius was a reliable historian for the most part. So there's not really any question about this in, in the modern world. Okay. Josh, I missed your first question. I had to take a potty break real quick. What I know you had brought up the inner witness of the Holy Spirit, and I wanted to make a point about that as well. But what can you summarize what you said uh, while I was gone? Uh, I don't want to make just, the same point as you. Uh, uh, no, no, I was just asking him what was the what was the he had used a particular phrase. Yep. Uh, about um, the 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 reader experiencing the movement of the spirit in the in the the reading of the text. Okay. And, and that was it. You didn't elaborate on that. Just what? No, no, no. I was just I was just trying to remember what it was that he had said. I didn't okay. remember the the exact phrase. The reason I ask is because I have a question about that. And so I was recently cool. going in preparation for the uh, the show last night and tonight, I guess you could say. I was currently reading uh, Dr. White's book, Dr. James White's Sola Scriptura. And I've listened to him a couple of times, well, three times uh, to be specific, in debates against Roman Catholic apologists. And every single time he has brought up the fact that the Holy Spirit, it's not the church, it's not the body of believers universally that dictates what the canon is, but more so the believers of God, the children of God that's indwelt by the Holy Spirit, recognizes these inspired books, right? And my question is, and maybe I'd have to ask Dr. Rock this, I don't know, Matt, if you can't answer it, then that's fine. But why? Why was there so so much disagreement in the early church? I and mean, even, yeah. even still now, right? Like, I, I don't want to just push this back into the first four centuries because, again, we still have disagreement about this. And I, th I I truly believe I'm one who believes there are true believers in Christ in every denomination. Right. There's somebody with faith in Christ there. So so why is that? Why are we not seeing that actually play out and, and, and have a universal recognized canon? Yeah, well, one thing is. Um... William Whitaker actually answers this exact argument too. why cool. uh, some books were received later. Why was there the disputes? Well, one thing is that some people have more spiritual illumination than others. Some mm -hmm. people can, I mean, obviously uh, unbelievers or, you know, those who are unregenerate within the church, uh, you know, first Corinthians two fourteen says the natural man cannot understand the things of the spirit of God. So it's it's obviously to be expected that they're going to be all over the place when it comes mm -hmm. to the most bas basic matter, the most basic matters of the faith, much less the canon. Um, so that would be one thing. I actually have a section on this somewhere in my notes that I'm going to look up and elaborate on more. And for one thing, I mean, the immediate reason for our reception of Scripture as the Word of God is the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. I mean, the properties that scripture attributes to itself, um, which no doubt is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, show this. 
I mean, scripture calls itself a light. It calls it a lamp unto our feet in Psalm 119. Right. You know, and uh, this this kind of shows forth like the self-authenticating, self-authenticating nature uh, of the word of God. Right. And um, John Owen uh, once said that that which is light may discover itself. He that needs another to tell him what is light does not have eyes, end quote. So and John Owen, he was also uh, reformed and he had, did a whole sermon on the relationship between the authority of the church and scripture. And he basically showed forth that scripture is self-authenticating. And that's what the early church fathers believed as well, was that the truly divinely inspired books of scripture have the marks of divinity within them that are open to the reader who diligently reads them and with the uh, illumination of the spirit within him. Because right. look, that's if I mean, no one can understand anything in scripture without at least without at the very least some of the common work of the spirit. Uh, there's a distinction between the common work of the Holy Spirit and the special saving work of the Holy Spirit. Right. So I would say no. that. Yeah, go ahead. No, I was going to say I agree. I, I, I totally agree that one cannot understand the deep things of God without the Holy Spirit. Right now you have people like Bart Ehrman, for example, who is a, a absolute. He is no favorite of Christians. Right. And and, and <laughs> he, he does not like Christianity whatsoever. Right. But for someone who has studied the Bible right, or, or the New Testament, let me just say the New Testament, his entire life, it seems like, um, and, and still doesn't come away with the truth that the gospel proclaims. I, I have to separate him from people like us who are indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who sees and, and who is testified to by the Spirit of God of these deeper things of God, right? Even though there are still disagreements among Christians about doctrinal statements, right? And so, but I, and you had mentioned something about, uh, you know, and, and I know you said the church as a good Presbyterian, you're talking about the visible church, right? There are unbelievers within the visible right. church and, right. and and absolutely agreed uh, to that. I'm not talking about those people, though. And, and I think now would be a good time to get into the canon list that you're talking about. And I actually have them pulled up here uh, for anyone that's interested. And I can put this actually. I just wanted and, to ask a quick go ahead, Dale. Go ahead. That before we move on, because um, out of interest, so like obviously I take the same view. You know, I like James White on, on this. Like back yeah. in the day when I was researching this, I agreed a lot with him. You know, uh, people, we were a thermometer, not a thermostat, thermostat type type deal, right? So people through the inner witness, Holy Spirit, we recognize these marks of divinity and that sort of thing, but. With that objection, so I agree with Matt's uh, response to it largely that, yeah, some people are in different states of spirituality and stuff like that. So maybe they're getting confused by reason, uh, by certain bad reasoning, and they're, you know, uh, doubting uh, certain books. But I'm just wondering, is there a difference? Like, um, were there are there Christians who claim, well, the Holy Spirit is attesting to this book that is apocryphal, shouldn't be a part of it? Um like what would be accounting for something like that? Because it wouldn't be. A... Yeah. Like how, how would you explain that? Look, yeah. Dale, I'm just going to say this. I've had the burning in the bosom whenever I read wisdom of Solomon. All right. And that's all I need. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. Cause it, it's, it's a different thing to be like, Oh, well I, I've got doubts. Like the Holy spirit isn't strongly attesting to this. So like, I, I'm not sure about the book of revelation or something. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, well, that but, goes into where we um, talk about the marks of canonicity. Uh, and one of those things would be, you know, that which has been historically received by the church of God, because the spirit of God leads the church into all truth, into all truth. And that includes the correct canon of scripture. So we can tell which books are being self-attested by the 
internal witness of the Holy Spirit by the external witness of the church historically. Okay. Um, and, I think that's the where the question comes from, though. I'm Sorry? pretty sure that's that's why Tyler is asking the question to begin with, is that there hasn't been a consensus yet reached about right. the, the scripture as such and which canon to go with, which tradition we should affirm. And and that begs the question, as or at least brings rise to the question, why hasn't that been established in a more firm, monolithic way, if that is what we would expect from it? And and I think in, to, to Dale's question, the example that I have fresh in my mind is the one we were just mentioning about Augustine. I don't think anybody would be so bold as to say he wasn't regenerate or that he no. was weakly spiritual or something. Yeah, um, I think that he was a very spiritually in tune person. I don't agree with everything he has to say, and I don't think anybody has to, but I think it would be a fool to say that he wasn't regenerate or at least wasn't a believer. Um, and and I, I think that the, the appeal to, uh, let's say, uh, our inability to understand deep things of the scripture without the guidance of the spirit, I don't think that's a that's a holistic answer for why the church throughout history has not had a unified view or tradition that's monolithic about the canon of the scripture. You know what I mean? Yeah, I understand that. Um, well, I was going to just clarify to Dale that when I was talking about like the external witness of the church, I mean, like throughout history, not just one particular church, not just one particular time period, but the majority. Uh, and so I, I personally don't consider like Rome or the East to be uh, the like true uh, representations of the of the true visible church. I think there are elect people within those churches. I think there are people within those churches who are converted, no doubt. But I don't consider Rome, strictly speaking, to be like a true church. I don't consider the East, the Eastern Orthodox, to be a true church in that sense. So I would clarify that. So, yeah, of course, there's always going to be disputes about the canon, just as there are today. All right, that's been going on for 2,000 years, so this is nothing new, but that doesn't mean that there is no correct canon. That doesn't mean that the people of God need to sit around worrying about which books are canonical every single minute of their lives. Yeah. No, I, I, I think I agree with that, Matt. I, if you're worrying about this, then let's talk. You know what I mean? Because yeah. even though I find this very, this subject very, very interesting, and as we see these you know, canonical lists uh, get ready, and I, I went ahead and I posted the link in the, or not the description, but in the comment section of where I'm actually looking at right now. And I'm going to go through these lists. I wish I had slides, man. I don't have slides. And so I'm just going to have to talk through this, but I, I definitely agree. Don't worry uh, about this thing. If you find, and let me just speak uh, pastorally for a second, but if you find treat the canonical or I'm sorry, treat the apocryphal books. I'm just going by the label that we have them now. Right. If you find something good in the apocryphal books, keep it. If there's something bad or something like that in the in the apocryphal books, throw them out, right? Because here's the thing, and this is what I want everybody to take home, even if it sounds like I'm disagreeing with the Hebrew canon, right? The Hebrew canon was the books that all of these churches or all of these canonicalists that I'm getting ready to read off, they're all there. There's one exception, and that's Esther. But all of the rest of them are there. There's no argument about Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and, and, and the list goes on, right? There's no arguments. All of these texts are affirmed in every single one of these canonical lists. And so the point that I'm trying to make more so is that other books are added to some of these canonical lists. And the really interesting thing to me is that some of the books that are added in one list aren't added in another list, right? 
And so we'll see that as we go through them. Uh, but guys, is there anything else that anybody wanted to add? So, so I'll, I'll yeah. say this before we get into yes. that. Don't worry. Don't worry. This ain't a thing to be worried about by any stretch of the imagination. But go uh, ahead. Regarding Esther, which you mentioned, which yeah. as a nation, I think some fathers actually did consider this to be canonical, even if they didn't list it officially in their canon list, because uh, like Athanasius in the 39th Festal Letter, where he famously gives the list of the canon, yep. he doesn't include, uh, he like refers to Esther as the non-canonical books. Right, but he afterwards says that this belongs to another volume, and perhaps to um, Ezra, or you know, many people like Isidore Is uh, believe that Ezra was the one who wrote Esther. So right. some, and that's sometimes the thing is that some of the fathers sometimes combine two books into one, considering them as one book. Right. So they did this with like Ezra and Nehemiah; they consider that yep. as one book. They did that with Jeremiah and Lamentations, and sometimes the letter of Jeremiah they added that in there too. Some of them considered first Sam, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. So four distinct books as one book, referring to it as like the book of the kingdoms, which is what the title that Belito gives to it. So right. that's that's the thing we need to recognize is that sometimes the books are combined. So just because you see outwardly that a church father says 22, 24, that doesn't automatically tell you he agrees with this or that view. You actually have to look at the list and see how he defines each of the books and how he may or may not be combining multiple books into one, considering them as like one unit, one canonical book, which they often do. Almost every canonical list of books we have from the early church does that at least once in its list. Right. And I think that's because the Septuagint put those books together. I mean, granted, yeah. I don't I don't think I, I think a lot of the early church fathers you know, read the the Septuagint and maybe even as well as the Hebrew scriptures. But the reason they give that order is kind of like what we was talking about earlier, is that that's the order that was familiar to people at the time. If you if you were a Gentile Christian, which spanned through, I mean, just look at where Paul went, right? Look at where Peter went in, in, in the New Testament and spread Christianity throughout the entire region that they were in. I mean, this was the common language. So think of Koine Greek like English is today. This was the common language that people discussed, and this was the inter, uh, I guess, the language barrier that people came to to discuss things that weren't from the same area as each other. I mean, it, it's just like English is today, and I think that's you know one of the main reasons, given the fact that God came down in history, literally wrote himself into the story in the most realistic way possible, chose this period, right? What language is he going to choose to communicate with his people in it? the language of the time, Koine Greek. And so that's just kind of my thoughts about it. Um, anybody else? Yeah. Uh, that, yeah, I would agree. I mean, we don't reject like the Septuagint altogether, but we would say that the Masoretic text is like the standard Hebrew or the standard text of the Old Testament that sh is more reliable and should be used. And I especially based that off of, you know, comparing it with the Dead Sea Scrolls. But I mentioned earlier the argument from the vowel points in the antiquity of the vowel points shows that and even actually the septuagint itself confirms the vowel points because it translates proper names in hebrew with the exact uh punctuation and accents and uh vowelization as the hebrew Masoret, masoretic notes do indicating that the the 72 translators of the septuagint which is the traditional story given under ptolemy philadelphus when he commissioned the 72 uh you know it's witnessed by aristius in his letter I discussed that he talks about like how the Septuagint came to exist. Uh, this is around like second century BC or mm -hmm. third century BC, perhaps. And uh, he mentions that the so the 70 translators were using Hebrew books that had the vowel points in them. 
Right. right. And that witnesses that the very Septuagint itself came from a Masoretic tradition. So the so without the Masoretic text, we wouldn't even have the Septuagint to begin with. That's interesting. Given even given the fact where the New Testament authors quote, it's completely different. Yeah, I was going to well, say there's a lot of there's a lot of distinguished like sections of the text. Like one of the things that that Sherman sent me earlier was uh, Isaiah 53 and the difference between the word crushed and the word cleansed and the tendency of the early church to use the word God was pleased to cleanse him rather than crush him. Uh, and that kind of distinction. It seems like the implications are are, are pretty different between the two different words. Um, and, and Well, doctrines of the faith, such as penal substitution, which is kind of what you mentioned there, are not dependent on one particular text. That's why the textual, no, there's not, none of the textual variants in the scriptures uh, make a huge difference of doctrine, because that's just not how systematic theology works. Right. Well, it would be a pretty different, uh, it would be a tr pretty drastic difference if penal substitution wasn't in view there say it again well what exactly was the variant cleanse and crush was the uh yeah variant? i believe it was a hold and let me let me look it up again because uh like i said sherman was the one that sent it to me earlier uh let me let me find it one thing uh, yeah i, I wish he was here me. i wish he was here mr mr sherman he dipped on us go ahead Dell. right yeah one thing i wanted to say about what we were talking about earlier just like a general point kind of thing is it's a, it's also interesting look in, with the apocrypha and the, these um other books other denominations like catholics and that sort of thing didn't really accept these as authoritative scripture until much later like i, I think i heard the latest the 1540s and stuff well they uh, did it well, rome did accept some of the books at the the council with pope damasus but still they were they were reconfirmed at the council of trent so, so yeah that that would be yeah but even even when the point that I wanted to make is, look, they had this special title, Deutero uh, Canonical, the second canonical. So even this kind of betrays the fact that they're not quite inspired. They're not quite the same. Uh, so I just wanted to raise, like, why, why do they have to have this Deutero Canonical label? Like, doesn't that kind of signify that, that even they are – even they recognize that it's a secondary status or something or – what do you guys think of that? Well, sort of, because they are considered. It's probably just because of the dispute surrounding those books. Um, and the title, and the title Deuterocanonical, was probably not invented. It was not invented at the Reformation, which shows the very fact that you even had, like you mentioned, you were right, and the very fact that you even have such a title and such a distinction shows that these books have not been universally accepted, that there have been disputes about this between different churches and different geographic locations, especially in the early church. And that's exactly what was going on. So. Okay. Okay. So it's not really like an, an admission on their, their part that. No, not quite no. the same. It's just saying, look, these are controversial. We'll give them that label type thing. Yeah. So, the, that's okay. what like the Roman Catholic church. I mean, cause Trent is a binding council of Rome. You know, they accept that and view it as infallible and errant. They get, you know, they embrace it completely. The The interesting thing, though, is I mentioned earlier, like the case of Cardinal Cajetan and uh, just some of the people involved in arguing against Martin Luther at that time still did not accept the official Roman Catholic canon. It's just kind of an interesting historical irony to recognize things like that. Yeah. Okay, cool. Over to Josh, whatever he's looking up. Uh, so, yeah, I, f I found it. He, uh, this is what Sherman sent off earlier in the group chat. 
Uh, two examples that illustrate the issue related to Messianic prophecy, Psalm 22.16 or 21.17 in the Septuagint, is it, they pierced my hands and feet, yeah. or like yeah. a lion, they are at my hands and feet, and then Isaiah 53.10, is Yahweh pleased to cleanse or to crush the servant? Both are possible from Hebrew, given the vowel pointings. The church fathers almost universally refer to the cleansed version of that translation. Well, the um, thing is, so you say given the vowel points, the only the only way to distinguish those types of verbs apart from each other is because they have the same triconsonantal root. Because this is how the Hebrew language works: is that the Hebrew verbs have three letters, three consonants that they're composed of. Sometimes they're the exact same consonants, and so without the vowel points. You can't tell them apart in meaning. They're interchangeable and they can mean different different things. That's why the vowel points are so necessary. And that actually is another argument in favor of the Masoretic text is that, you know, basically without it, you, you really can't even understand the message of the Old Testament at all. But regarding some of those specific variants, uh, Psalm twenty two sixteen, like a lion or pierced, uh, the Septuagint rightly does read oduxan, which means pierced in Greek. Uh, whereas some most of the Masoretic uh, manuscripts, at least the medieval ones, uh, do <clears throat> have the term uh, like a lion. But that, those readings don't have to differ in meaning because what does a lion do? It bites. And so if you say like a lion at my hands and feet, that's just a metaphor for saying cutting or piercing my hands and feet. So there's no I don't think there really needs to be like a you know huge antithesis between those two readings. I think that's just an error of modern um you know, especially more liberal textual criticism, which tries to attack the reliability of, of scripture. Well, I'm so, not attacking the reliability of scripture. Oh, I know. I know. I was yeah. I, I was more so asking about the, the reference to Isaiah 53. Um, and there is a theological difference, or at least an implication difference, between crushing and cleansing, especially in terms of atonement and our understanding of atonement. Uh, and there are those who don't even affirm uh, penal substitution as a primary or even part of their understanding of atonement theories. And there's not a like a monolithic view on that either. And so there's a lot of things that come into this uh, in terms of this discussion that aren't necessarily as plain as we would like them to be. That's all I was yeah. saying. Yeah. But well, also that the, the it seems like the consensus, at least as far as what, what Sherman was talking about in that quote, is that the early church fathers almost universally refer to the uh, the the Septuagint version and not the Hebrew version, which well, would mean that they that that there's a distinction there that made a difference to how they were referencing that text. I, you know, Josh, I thought the same thing, and Matt, I, I think I'm going to actually agree with you on this one. And so, given the vowel, given the vowel points aren't in the older, older Hebrew, right? Given the fact that they still have those same three consonantal stems, it can be read either way. It can be read pierced, or it can be read like line. And so, just because it has pierced there, which is what the Septuagint agrees with, you don't actually have to have like a lion, even if those are the are given that they're the same three consonantal or yeah, the consonantal stems, because they can mean the same thing. Is that right? Do I need to reword that? Because that was a little bit confusing even for me. But I guess what I'm trying to say in a nutshell is that since it can be read either way, it doesn't imply that Paul, for example, or the church fathers read it one way over the other because both meanings are found in the Hebrew. Does that make sense? Yeah, I wanted to read a, I posted in the chat an article from the purely Presbyterian website called Did the Apostles Favor the Septuagint? Uh, it's a pretty good article that draws from the reformers' arguments against the 
full authenticity or reliability of the Septuagint. So I would recommend that one for anyone uh, tripped up on the subject. But there's also a quote uh, from Justin Martyr, all right, one of the one of the apostolic fathers or Greek apologists, uh, mid first century to second century, and so his testimony about the Septuagint is very very interesting. Uh, and be, be, uh, when you when I quote when I read this quote, bear in mind the background that the fact that the Septuagint came from Ptolemy Philadelphus and the elder the seventy or some say seventy two elders of Alexandria. So Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trypho, chapter seventy one, speaking to speaking to a Jew says, quote, your teachers have removed many complete passages of those scriptures in their entirety from the translation of the elders who were with Ptolemy. Those passages show clearly that he was crucified, that he who was crucified is both God and man and that his crucifixion and death were foretold. So according to Justin Martyr, during his time, the Jews were corrupting the Septuagint and other texts in order to remove the prophecies of Christ as a Messiah and to introduce all sorts of anti-Christian variations into the Old Testament text. That's that's just a martyr's testimony. So I would definitely trust that because that is very early testimony. And he was very much familiar with what was going on within Judaism during his time as the early Christians were. Hold on. The Jews were corrupting the Septuagint or they were corrupting the Hebrew text? Well, according to Justin Martyr, they were probably they were doing both. Okay. Did they, so it was both to take out the messianic prophecies, right? Gotcha. That's what that's what Justin Martyr says in the dialogue with Trifo. Okay, okay. So I would recommend uh, Johann Gerhard was one of the Lutheran scholastics, and he um like brings forward like seven arguments against the Septuagint. So Sherman, Sherman, my friend. I probably can't hang out very long, but I couldn't let that. Go. Oh, you... <laughs> all right, Justin... come on. Justin Martyr was not writing about the corruption of the Septuagint there. He was talking about the corruption of the Masoretic text. But he mentions the translation okay. from Ptolemy. Right, right. So he's he is um he's arguing against the the readings that we have in some of those passages. So they pierced my hands and feet, right? That was being used by Christians to argue for the crucifixion of Christ. And not being a prophecy of the crucifixion of Christ. Right. Like a lion at my hands and feet does not have the same connotation. We can say it might have the same effect, but it certainly doesn't seem to point to the crucifixion quite as strongly. Right. So Justin Martyr is pushing back against that kind of change that was being made, or at least he was saying it was being made. And if we're Christians, I think we should probably at least give some benefit of the doubt to other Christians versus the, the rabbis that preserved the Hebrew text in ways that um let's just say this we don't know that they corrupted the text right that would be overreading this right um but we what we can say is that there were multiple streams of the hebrew text and and um the the book that that uh, author that tyler has been referencing says this um there were multiple streams of the hebrew text it was not a single set a stream uh and the septuagint often and we see this from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Often the Septuagint is, is basically um, reflecting a translation from a different stream than the one that was preserved through the Masoretic text that we have today. Um, and um, at the end of the day, what we end up with is, is something where you look at it and you say, okay, so the rabbis seem to have a preference for the one that's more advantageous for them. And the Christians seem to have a preference for the Septuagint uh, and uh, in places where it's more advantageous for them. What do we do with that? Right. And and the, the thing that I think is is rather amazing to me is that that in the um, in the push to push back against Rome, 
uh, basically saying we are going to take the Latin scriptures uh, that that are being you know pushed with Rome with Rome's commentary, right? And in the push to reject that to get out from underneath Rome, one of the things that ended up happening is the reformers basically had to choose which text they wanted to to choose as authoritative. They decided to go back to the source. They went back to the Hebrew because that makes a lot of sense. But they didn't know some of the things about the Hebrew that we know now from the Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes. 90 some odd percent of it is exactly the same or tiny, tiny, tiny variations. So when we're talking about the reliability of scripture, it's definitely there. But some of the variations that are there are very, very telling when we're talking about prophecies of Christ that are not there in the Masoretic text. And they're clearly there in the Septuagint. And some of those are ones that are clearly there in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Right. So for one, the argument from the Westminster Confession that section one of uh, part eight, uh, right, that yes. uh, that the Hebrew scriptures were, were preserved perfectly. Right. That's not accurate of the Masoretic text, which is what they would have been referring to at the time of Westminster. Right. So that doesn't really fully work. And then we're taking on the Hebrew scriptures uh, and, and uncritically. Right. Because if they are the one we have to take when they disagree, we cannot take a Septuagint reading and then try to correct what we what, what uh, the Masoretic text says. Right. We can do that with the Dead Sea Scrolls, kind of. But it's still kind of weird to do. Um, so I don't know, like, I, I'm sorry, I, I'm frustrated because I'm listening to this and I'm going, but that's not, ah, um, obviously I have strong feelings. I disagree on some of this stuff. Um, when we see the apologists like Justin Martyr, they're actively arguing with, with the rabbis about this. And a lot of the differences are in places where the Septuagint and the Masoretic text disagree. And the, the rabbis are using the Masoretic text to reject the Christian reading. There is no way you're going to see a, a Christian apologist then saying, we have to take the Masoretic text because it agrees with the rabbis that reject Jesus. That's a crazy argument. Okay. Yeah, well, I, I'm done venting. <laughs> sure. You're fine, man. You're fine. I get it. Yeah. Uh, there's two things I would mention here. First of all, Romans 3.2 says that the Jews, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So we sure. should, in a sense, place some authority with what the Jews have said. I know. No, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Are you talking about the rabbin rabbinic Judaism, or are you talking about about the Jews leading up to the Day of Christ? Those are two completely I, different things. Sure, I would I would say mainstream Judaism. I don't think that those are mutually exclusive categories. Okay, so mainstream Judaism, right? Basically, coming from Pharisaism, mostly is what we have preserved, and then not through a council at Jemnia, but through activity in that city over time. Right. They they basically, you know ended up deciding what people ended up using, right? So it wasn't like a one moment thing, but it was, this is what we think we should be using moving forward. They rejected any any scriptures that were not written in Hebrew because they didn't want to have the witness of the Greek, uh, the intertestamental books and, and some of the, the, the Greek stuff that uh, that was pointing to Christ. And, and what, one of the crazy things about this is that means rejecting the Maccabees, right? So they have Hanukkah. They celebrate Hanukkah. They reject the book that 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 catalogs the history of that. That's crazy. Yeah, as right? yeah, they rejected the books of the Maccabees, like the majority of the early church did. Correct, because the early Christians also did not believe uh, first and second Maccabees were, were authoritative either. So, so there's also kind of an equivocation here, I, I think, on uh, when we're talking about the early church, right? Um, some of that we can look at and we can say this is preserved because we have writings that refer to things, right? Some of it, um, I, I, when we look at the things that have been preserved in churches in different places around the world, like, you know, the Ethiopian canon, much bigger, 
in the Orthodox Church. Most of the Orthodox canons are bigger. They, they basically kept the same you know, canon of scriptures um, for, for a very long time. Now, I won't say from the beginning, because you know you have books like Revelation that took a while for them to kind of figure out what they wanted to do with that, because there was, um, there was basically some, some effort to discredit Revelation um, in, in, in early church history that yeah. ha had some effect in the East that it didn't have in, in the West. Um, and it took a while for them to kind of figure that out. Right. Um, but, you know, it's, especially when we're talking about, you know, the old Testament canon, um, they've been pretty consistent about what they, what they, what they keep. And, and it's, um, pretty consistent in, in the, in the different jurisdictions. Right. So, um, I don't know, like, I, I feel like a lot of this is going back and basically saying, if we limit this to just the kinds of things that we pay attention in Western Christianity, if we limit this to just the writings, especially of the Latin fathers, if we limit this to the way that Rome looked at things, you can make some different arguments than, than once you start kind of opening it up and looking at it more broadly, that the idea of canon was just, it was a lot more fluid in the early church. And the reason that canon came up wasn't because it was, we have to have this authority to tell us what to believe. It was, we don't want these heretics telling us what books, you know, telling people what books they shouldn't, shouldn't be, uh, shouldn't, shouldn't, shouldn't be having. So we are going to draw some lines around this as we go through time, as we have these things that pop up where, where we're like, oh, you're crazy. No, let's draw a line there. Right? And the same kind of thing is basically what happened when you see the, the development of the doctrine of the Trinity from uh, what we see in scripture to what to the terms that were used in the Nicene Creed, right? It wasn't, um, we're just going to come up with these terms. It wasn't, we're just going to take Greek philosophy and just shove it in here. It was, these are terms that we find helpful as we're continuing to have these conversations with people yeah. that, that are coming up with ideas that when we look at it, we say, there is no way that salvation is possible if Christ wasn't fully God and fully man, because we believe that he became man so that we could become like God, right? And right. that whole Definitely. process requires that kind of knit together to, you know, two natures and one person kind of thing going on. If you start rejecting that, it doesn't work, right? So they started to use language that was more specific as time went on when they were drawing boundaries against uh, the, these different groups. Um, so again, I'm, I'm kind of just, getting, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, and if I, you had mentioned the early church and like yeah. I said, I've got these canonists brought up and yeah. the earliest. So excluding Josephus from this, because I'm focusing on the Christians and mm -hmm. what they were saying at the time. Right. Yeah. You had mentioned uh, first and second Maccabees. Origin affirms first and second Maccabees. Codex mm -hmm. Claremontanius affirms first and second Maccabees. I think Hillary. Nope. I'm sorry. Hillary doesn't. Hillary's um, fourth century. That's way later. Right. Well, most of these yeah. uh, or origin is third century. And yeah. yeah. Uh, but you know who's second century and rejects first and second Maccabees? Melito of Sardis. Fair enough. So, so if we're gonna go by antiquity, so if we're affirming Melito though, then we're affirming wisdom of Solomon, and it, that doesn't <laughs> yeah. do anything to get us out of the boat that we're in. <laughs> the, the, I, I think the challenge that we have here is basically, you know, what are we trying to say, right? Are we trying to say that the church has always consistently looked at the the canon of the Old Testament the same way? We cannot say that. No. So right. we probably I shouldn't think. be pursuing that goal. Um, and, and the other question is, why are we pursuing what we're pursuing, right? And if it's it's what, if what we're trying to do is to look at these are the boundaries around which we these are texts that we will listen to and consider authoritative versus which ones we don't, I can understand why we want to do that. Uh, but sometimes I think we we can try to draw those boundaries in ways that are actually tighter than even the early church did, right? Because they had that variety. 
and that variety was okay. They were they were talking it through. They were they were discussing things. They were trying to figure out what was going on to try to then read a canon all the way back into the, the early church and say this is this is the Bible, right? It's a, it's not what they had, right? Yeah, they but had... that's not the claim that I've been making throughout this stream. What I've been saying is that the vast okay. majority of our earliest canonists, most of them, are closer to the Protestant canon than they are to the Roman Catholic canon or the Eastern canon. Well, and, and that's fair enough. Like, you know, I I, uh, I would have to look at all of those to, to try to make a substantive argument about it. And uh, I'm I'm not going to you know call you call you a liar. I I believe you when you say sure. that. And, you know, I know you've studied quite a bit. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I I guess I'm the very fact that there is variety, to me, I think points to a different conception of scripture than we bring to it today. Um, that there was more of a sense of you know, these things are witnessing to the truth of God um, that had a little more flexibility in it. Um, and that's not to, to, to talk down about, you know, saying, you know, uh, about inspiration or, uh, you know, about, you know, how amazing, uh, you know, the gospels are. Uh, obviously, those are, are, are held up in, in on all the churches. Yeah. Um, and um, there are ways some people might argue they're, they're even held up to a higher regard in, in, in Rome in the East than, than in other churches. But I'm not going to make that argument because that goes into places where we just have disagreement. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, um, gosh, I'm trying to think of anything else. Um, so yeah, the, the pierce my hands and feet, that one is an interesting one. The one with, with the vowel pointing uh, in Isaiah 53, part of the thing with that is, um, is essentially what you have there is two possible readings, right? Um, and without the vowels, you don't know. Um, right. Exactly. I, I think it's I, I would love to see textual evidence that the vowel pointings are as early as as you seem to be. Oh, I'd there. love to go into this. I'd love to go into this. OK. Um, all right. So I don't even I have a I have a whole thing about it. So first of all, let's talk about um, early church evidence, early church evidence. So if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, let me pull up the quote Clement of Alexandria. In his Stromata, Book Three, Chapter Four, says says this quote: "They are those who pervert the Scriptures to their own pleasures while reading a tone of voice, and by the transposition of certain accents and points, which have been wisely and usefully prescribed, they derive their own delights." So, in the context here, Clement is commenting on Malachi three fifteen. So, it would make sense for him here to be referring to the Hebrew language rather than the Greek. Mm -hmm. So that, that's one piece. I can go in also to like rabbinic evidence because the scholarly consensus today is that the Tiberian Masoretes from like the 6th century up until the 9th century. So like from AD 500 to 900, most scholars today of the Old Testament say that the vowel points were invented little by little in that time period. I reject that. I think there's a very good case to be made that the vowel points uh, at the latest actually came from Ezra and the men of the great synagogue. And no one uh, disputes the fact that Ezra was inspired and authoritative. So, and the rabbis of Second Temple Judaism believed that the vowel points came from Ezra as well, as you can read in like texts like Barashit Rabbah, you know, part of the Midrash, and so in the Mishnah as well. So we can talk about those if you want. I have some quotes mm -hmm. from those documents if you'd like to hear them. Nice. Um, no, I mean, I, I think that'd be very interesting. I, the, the challenge that, that we have with a lot of this stuff is kind of an interesting conundrum, right? So um, in terms of textual evidence, most of what we're going to see in things like the Mishnah and the Talmud, we're talking about things that were written down later, right? Um, then, then we think they were probably actually originally composed. Um, and so it makes it hard 
to kind of nail down exactly um, what um, what the contents of those things was and how accurate the things that were written down were and how much um, the tradition maybe even was changed in some ways, perhaps in uh, in reaction to Christianity in between the, the, the time when, you know, these things are supposedly there, right? Because I, I do think there are some traditions that, that the Pharisees had during the days of Jesus that seem to have been preserved. And if you kind of compare notes, it does seem like at least something like what we see in, in uh, the later rabbinic writings was, was in their heads, right? right. Um, but it, it is an interesting thing because then you also have the same kind of thing going on, right? And so this is where I kind of open the book a little bit on, on my end. You have the same kind of thing going on when we start asking about oral tradition within Christianity, right? Yeah. So not a not so much a challenge for you because you're sticking to the, to the written text. But um, you know, for someone like me that that has has become Orthodox, um, you know, obviously th there's there's only so far I want to push on the reliability of oral tradition. In one sense, if I'm trying to, to cast doubt on, on, on what um, what the rabbis actually said, um, and, and then kind of, um, can I be consistent in applying that hermeneutic across the board when I'm talking about oral tradition on, on the side of the Christianity, right? So um, the one thing I will say is that generally speaking, you know, oral tradition in the ancient world was considered um, very reliable uh, and, and actually more reliable than the written text. Right. Um, and, and the reason for that being if you heard it from the horse's mouth, at least you knew that that person was saying it, right? So if you heard it from the teacher, you know, you heard it from Socrates, then, then you knew Socrates said it. If someone writes stuff down and they say, here are the writings of Socrates, how do you prove that? Right? Right. How do you prove that? And so um, it's interesting that we've kind of reversed those roles. And, and I don't think, I don't think it's entirely a mystery, right? Because we are more distant. Right. So when you are in person at the time, obviously being face to face is going to make more sense than the writing because it, it's more uh, authentical, if you will. But, um, you know, once you get a, as distant as we are, we look at things like writings and we say, OK, I have this concrete evidence in my hands. This seems like something I can I can hold on to versus talking about oral tradition that, that is a little harder to nail down. I can understand why we give different evidences, different priorities when we're talking about those kind of things. So, um, yeah, it gets really interesting really fast. You know, that's interesting, Sherman, that you bring that up. It seems like whenever, when when do we get the majority of the Gnostic Gospels to be written? Well, it's after the Apostles die. And yeah. so you, you kind of get that, well, did Paul actually say this? And so I get where yeah. you're from there. Yeah, I mean, you, you get people like, like Elaine Pagels that want to argue that the Gnostic Gospels were like, earlier than, <laughs> but yeah. most well, people no one, are no like, one, I don't no. take Elaine Pagels seriously at all. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, mean, I would really love yeah. to get into a discussion around the Val points, though, if you wanted to. But okay. if you have time, Sherman, I, how I much will time be. Do you have. I am. I have maybe five ten minutes. Um, let's see. Well, I was going to say we're about ten yeah. minutes away from the two hour mark. I don't know if you guys want to. Yeah. Do we um, want to save that for a, sure. another round? Um, what if we did like a stream just on the Val points? Well, I'm fine with that. I mean, given that, the way you guys have interacted tonight, like, let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it, it would be super because uh, you sent a thing over about the antiquity. Okay, so this is from your blog. Right. So so this would be a good thing to read up on to just to kind of get a sense of, of where yeah, you're coming from. I include from some okay. links to a couple other books. There's actually um, like a 300-page book written in the 1700s by John Gill, who is a uh, – he was a Calvinist and a uh, Hebrew scholar. 
And he wrote this book that 300 pages defending the inspiration of the Valpoints. Uh, and he goes like throughout. I mean, I think there's a couple places where he does kind of stretch things to a degree. I would not say mm. like he goes as far as to say, like, you know, that there are certain books which like uh, some people consider to be written by the patriarch Abraham. And yeah. therefore, these sure. Sure, I think that's S- same honestly. kind of thing. Like when you, when you say that you know that, that first Enoch was written by Enoch, it's right? Like, well, exactly. We probably don't, John... I don't think we're going to go there. <laughs> what? It Gill... wasn't. Yeah, and John <laughs> Gill makes and John Gill makes some of those leaps, which I would not make. But for the most part, I would say that I agree with a lot of what he does say, and it's it's amazing. So I would recommend that, and also Peter Whitfield's treatise on it as well. Okay. Right on. Yeah, I'll, I'll have to check some of that out because I, I, I will, will admit I have not done as much study on kind of the early history of some of those things. Um, but, um, you know, generally speaking, you know, in, in looking at and comparing things and seeing how the New Testament authors, the apostles are, are using scripture, um, it does seem to me that there's at least a, a pretty even balance of the way where they're quoting from the Septuagint versus the Masoretic text. Right. Um, I, I know that there are people that reject the Masoretic text um, it, within Orthodoxy. Uh, I, I'm not one of those people. Um, I tend to take more of kind of the like a let's see what all the different texts say approach uh, to trying to understand the places where they differ because I like to have the perspective of uh, and the understanding of that. Um, but I do think it's rather odd to side with uh, uh, by default with the text that was preserved by people that rejected Christ and to reject the text that was preserved by Christians. That's a very odd position for Christians to take. Yeah, well, it's a, well, like he said, with the New Testament, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes you'll see him affirming the Septuagint. Sometimes they'll affirm the Masoretic text. It's 50-50. Mm-hmm. All right, yeah. there's variation. Yeah. So, and, 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 I don't and, believe... and there really shouldn't be, if, if what we're reading, uh, if the Westminster Confession's view of the scriptures is correct, we should not see that. We should well, be that's not that. that's not entirely. Well, Westminster did not say there's been complete unanimity regarding the authentic text of Scripture throughout all of the church's history. Westminster never said that. It just said what it did say is that, uh, you know, that the most standard, the most authentic, the most reliable text of the Hebrew Bible of the Old Testament is the Hebrew text referring to the Masoretic. If I can actually get this to load, I'll read it to you. Um, this Westminster. Okay. This is Westminster, section one, item eight. The Old Testament in Hebrew, which was the native language of the people of God of old, and the New Testament in Greek, which at the time of the writing of it was most generally known to the nations, being immediately inspired by God and by his singular care and providence, kept pure in all ages, are therefore authentical. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. Okay, did Westminster say there that the church or that people within the church have always accepted the Masoretic text or the Hebrew as it refers to it? What do you mean? Well, because you basically try to pin the idea on Westminster that we believe that there was no dispute in the early church regarding the Masoretic versus the Septuagint, whereas Westminster and I have never said that. Okay, so I, I'm not necessarily trying to say that. What I'm trying to say is that if... Um, if what Westminster was saying was is correct, that the Old Testament in Hebrew is was you know kept pure in all ages by God's singular care, is therefore the authentical version of the Old Testament. So as in all controversies of religion, the church is finally to appeal unto them. In the places where the Septuagint and the Hebrew text differ, we should by default go with the Hebrew text, which yes. 
that is preserved would be the Masoretic text, right? Right. So why do we see there are places where the apostles quote from the Septuagint in places where it differs from the Masoretic text? Hmm. Well, they should not be doing to... that if Westminster's view of scripture is correct. Well, I'd refer you to what Johann Gerhardt says. All right. I, I quote, let me pull you up that article because you probably find this useful because it, it oh, addresses yeah, sure. this question. Okay. Uh, the purely Presbyterian website. Okay. I just pushed, put it in private chat. So I'm not familiar with all of the stuff with the New Testament citations of the Septuagint in particular. I'll admit that. Um, but I refer you to this article because this does go a lot more in depth into that particular question of why did the apostles uh, quote the Septuagint often? Okay. Yeah. Well, I'm for one am excited that Sherman got to be here. So yeah. Yeah, <laughs> I am too. Definitely. And so, and and what we can do is, since I had told our audience that I was going to read off some of these canon lists, Sherman, if you got to go, I think we'll yep. end the show like that. Perfect. And then um, I, I was trying to find a decent. Uh, so what was written in the New Testament versus the Septuagint versus the Hebrew text? I've got one here. I mean, I've got a lot of them pulled up for anybody that's actually interested. Uh, Michael uh, or Timothy Michael Law actually cites a lot of these in yeah. uh, his book, When God Spoke Greek, specifically in chapter nine. I, I guess I'll just read this one since it's the one that's staring at me. So Romans 9.33 says, As it is written, see, I am laying in Zion a stone that will make people stumble and a rock that will make them fall, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. The Septuagint says, Therefore thus says the Lord, See, I will lay for the foundations of Zion a precious choice stone, a highly valued cornerstone for its foundations, and the one who believes in him will not be put to shame. Whereas the Hebrew says, See, I am laying in Zion a foundation stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, one who trusts will not panic. And so that's, th there is different ones. Uh, like I said, he lists probably about 15 of these differences with yeah. some that are, you know, like what you said, the difference between being pierced and being in the jaws of a lion or, or however it's worded. And so. And, and, and it's, it, it is, you know, it is important to underline what we're talking about are rare cases. Right. Right. Um, so, again, when we're talking about the difference between reliability of Scripture and talking about um, what we should by default be accepting versus what we should pay attention to with textual variants, um, you know, those are two different questions. The, the We have far more manuscripts uh, from both the Old and New Testament than we have of anything else that's remotely as ancient in, in the world. <laughs> right. um, so right. um, when we're talking about rely and, and most for most the most part, they match when we hear things around there's 400,000 variations or something like that from from some scholars, they're, they're counting like letter differences that don't change the meaning. Mm -hmm. Right. So right. Um, and, and that and sometimes that's inflated because it's like they're looking across all the manuscripts we have. So if a couple of them differ, then they're like, that's a variant. Well, OK, that's, you know, um, in, all, in all honesty, I haven't seen one that changes the meaning. Now, I've heard that there are some that actually change yeah. the variants that change the meaning of the text. But I think everyone will agree that even if it changes the meaning, there's no foundational doctrinal points within Christianity that those variations change or those variants change. Right. Yeah. I haven't even seen the meaning change. I mean, in, in, I, I in would even paper, say but... that's that's true when we're talking about a lot of the variations between the Textus Receptus and the critical text. Right. Um, that when if you only look at that passage in isolation, you can look at it and say, "Oh, there's um, one. There's you know, one that um, I know of, bro, but... and that's Jude five. Okay. Oh, where, yeah. Where either Jesus let him out of the uh, yeah, of yeah. Egypt, or if God 
well, which they're both the same, you know, but yeah, you get it. So, yeah. Well, and that one's interesting because I mean, at this point, at least from the most of the scholars I'm paying attention to that, you know, are more confessional. So, you know, yeah. they, they have a reason to say this maybe, but um, you know, I want to say the UBS five, like the latest, you know, says Jesus in the, in that text. So does right? the they're, they're taking that reading. So, yep. um, and maybe I'm thinking the NA 28, I'm, I'm trying to remember which of the ones I was thinking, but yeah. Um, that one's very interesting. So I do have I to run. ask. Uh, oh, go ahead. Yeah, I wanted to ask Joshua, do you accept uh, the Texas Receptus or just the Byzantine text type of the New Testament? Uh, do, do I accept that that is the true one in the end? There are not, no other ones that have any any um, validity to them. No, I just meant like, would you accept that as the most reliable text type? Generally? It was the most reliable. Um <sighs> Because Honestly, you're Eastern Orthodox and Byzantine yeah. text type, I'd figure you'd yeah. go with the Byzantine. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, so... Uh... With that one, I, I honestly feel like it's 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 more complicated than, than that. So um, I would be a bit more likely to say, you know, I could favor the TR than I would to say that I'm new King James only or King right. James only. Right. Yeah. Um, but even then, I'm not going to commit to saying, you know, one, one or the other. I think there are places where um, there are some differences that, that I think the critical text maybe has a better reading on. So um, I, I guess you could say I'm, I'm noncommittal on some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, and, yeah. Go ahead, Sherman. Go ahead. Uh, and I, I was just going to say, too, you know, I mean, it, depending on what you're looking at, Byzantine, you know, like Textus Receptus could be a very narrow set of documents if we're talking about what Erasmus put together, um, or it could be, you know, kind of a broader family of documents, too. So um, that could that could come into play. Right on, guys. Well, this has been a very lively exchange. Like I said, Sherman, I know you got to get going, Matt. You just yep. mentioned that you have to run as well. And so, Sherman, if you want to go ahead and run, uh, feel free. Matt, you're chained till the end. No, I'm just kidding. If you have to run as well. <laughs> yeah. uh, well I, I'm sorry to sorry to come in hot like a wrecking ball. I, uh, well, it's it's um, fine, man. I can... Man, you did. You Miley Cyrus this all, all <laughs> up. So, yeah. um, I, I mean, I'm cool with it, but good job. Yeah. Both of you guys, good job. So anyway, yeah. but I do, like I said, for Thank our listeners, uh, for the people that are still here, you had heard me promise that I was going to read uh, some of these uh the earliest list that we have, and I, and I really like BibleCanon.org uh, for this reason. They're not a sponsor by any stretch of the imagination, but I, I was researching this, and I wanted to just compare these just for my own personal sake. And so what we have here, the earliest, is actually Josephus against Appion, which, lo and behold, agrees uh, with the Hebrew text here. Uh, the next one is, he didn't hear me say that he was chained till the end, apparently, so... He, he left and he disobeyed me. So sovereignly, since I'm the host, I no, I'm just kidding. I'm just playing around. But um, then next we have, I'm going to butcher this, but Bryennios, Bryennios list. It's from 100 to 150 AD. And this actually affirms all of the Hebrew canon, right? There's no additions. There's nothing um, added to this list. Now, let me say this for our listeners that are still here and for you guys. These are the only two, the only two that I have seen early that agrees with the Protestant or Hebrew canon. The rest of them differ, and I'll show you where they differ. So the next one is we have from 170 AD, the Moratorian Fragment. Now, granted, this is a New Testament canon list, but what it does is affirm the wisdom of Solomon as a canonical book. The next one we have is Melito's list, which you heard Matt and I think um, 
Well, I know Matt and I talked about this earlier today. And again, Wisdom of Solomon is affirmed as a, a canonical book. What's an interesting, and Matt addressed this earlier, but the omitted books are Esther, Nehemiah, and Lamentations. Now, granted, Esther could have been put in and lumped in with different books. For example, the 12 prophets, the 12 minor prophets that we have each in their own book in our Protestant uh, canons, those were all considered one book. Lamentations and Jeremiah was always considered one book in the early uh, church. And so that could be what's going on here. Esther could be lumped in uh, somewhere, and Nehemiah and Nehemiah could be lumped in with Ezra, and Lamentations could be lumped in with Jeremiah. We just don't know, but what we do know is that he doesn't list Esther, Nehemiah, or Lamentations and adds Wisdom of Solomon uh, in that. And again, I think Matt pointed out this that that's, a, that's from Eusebius, so we don't have Melito's list that he wrote or anything like that but Eusebius preserved this. The next one is actually from a guy that I really like and I'm, and, and I'm coming to really like is uh, Origen. Origen actually affirms the epistle of Jeremiah and first and second Maccabees. Um, now it says Maccabees here. Uh, let's see. He says listed outside of these Origen implies that Jews continue to use first Maccabees yet do not regard it as belonging to the same category. So what we were talk talking about earlier, ecclesiastical text versus canonical lists. Granted, Origen believed that Maccabees and the Epistle of Jeremiah was canonical, was scripture. Uh, the disputable books in uh, uh, Origen's list, and this is New Testament, but uh, but I thought it was interesting. So he lists as Second and Third John, James, and Second Peter as disputable books. We don't know if they were canon or not uh, to him. The next is Codex Vaticanus. And guys, if you have any questions, uh, feel free to stop me and jump in. But uh, Codex Vaticanus. Now, this is where we start seeing a broader. One thing, one yeah, thing go else. ahead. Are, are you able to share your screen just so people? Because for me, you I'm can't. not on that screen. I'm on two different laptops right now. Oh, that's right. Okay. Uh, yeah. Hold on. Maybe maybe what? I can try to share Bible.org yeah. under the lists or something. Just so because I'm a visual learner, like I, none of this is syncing. Please. Yeah. 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 Um, okay, so Bible Canon uh, lit under the under the category of yeah the list. Yep, click the list. Okay, so let me. I'm just going to share my screen just yep. so the audience can see how to get there as well. Yeah, right? go ahead. That's perfect, so, Del. But, I, I love you for this. No, no, but I, I was totally useless for that entire thing, and I realized that. So uh, this is my way of making it up and doing something. <laughs> Good no, you are a matrix agent. You kept it safe. There yeah. you go. There you go. All right. So it's under the list. Yeah. Accepted canons. Tyler's nope. talking about that. The list. Yep. Okay. And yep. then here is the Bernicius. So this one totally agrees with us, right? Yes. That one agrees with us. So if you want to click it to show everybody what I'm talking about, it'll pop up there. That's actually a really intuitive layout for that. I like that. It is. And what's interesting is that it lists the books, not in the, not in the exact words as the, uh, the writings where these are found, but it lists them so we know in our modern day what they were talking about. So, for example, uh, if you get to, I think, it's Origins commentaries. Yeah, for Maccabees here, he says that Origin, you know, implies that Jews continue to... Well, that's not a good example. So, there are some of these that will say, like, Estras, for example. Well, as a Protestant, or, or even maybe uh, Rome... We don't know what Esdras is. What is that? Well, that's Ezra and Nehemiah. 
And so it breaks it down like that for people in our age. So we can say, okay, this, this is what these guys were talking about. So Del, if you want to go ahead and exit out of that, but Brian, uh, I don't know how to pronounce that guys. So if you want to help me out, Brienios list or whatever. Um, the next one is the moratorium fragment, which is a new Testament, uh, list. And it actually, like I said, right there, uh, list wisdom of Solomon as canonical, uh, next. Next one is Melitos. Uh, he includes again, wisdom of Solomon. And then you see the, uh, I'm pointing to them, but you see the information tabs right by Estras up there at the very top. Um, this? Nope. Down, down, left. Uh, up, okay. up, 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 up. Oh, the, the eye icon. Yeah. The little black circles. This thing? Up. Un up. Yeah. Right there to the left. There you go. Right oh. there. So see how he has Ezra's right there? Yeah. Okay. That could include, and that's if you go straight down to where you were, where it says Nehemiah and it has the same little black circle. Yeah. Yep. That could be included with Esdras. So Nehemiah, not explicitly mentioned, may have been implied with Esdras. So that, that was a normal thing for these people to do, was to label Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah under the one category of Esdras. So that's what that's trying to tell you. So next. The next one is Origen, which, again, I really like Origen. Uh, he includes the Epistle of Jeremiah and in, in the uh, in the prophet Jeremiah there. And he also includes Maccabees, though he says, if you want to click that, Dell, that's good, uh, that the Jews outside of these origin implies that the Jews continue to use first Maccabees, yet do not regard it as belonging to the same category. So that's what I was saying earlier, that they would consider this book as ecclesiastical or as helpful, but not inspired. The Christians, on the other hand, like origin, did affirm uh, Maccabees and as well as uh, Augustine or Augustine. Uh, affirm first and second Maccabees as canonical. And I, like I said, I believe that to mean inspired since he separates that from what the Jews believed as canonical. So next. Alrighty. All right. The next we have is Codex Vaticanus, and this is where we get into a broader canon. As you can see there, uh, they include wisdom. Uh, so that's wisdom of Solomon, Sirach or Ben Sirah or Ecclesiasticus. They include Baruch in Jeremiah. Uh, Codex Venicatus includes the Epistle of Jeremiah. So that's really the first time we see the all four Jeremiah books under one category, which is the prophet Jeremiah. Kind of like we see in Matthew, for example, how, or, or it's Mark, how he lists um, Isaiah and, oh, who's the guy that he quoted from? Malachi, maybe? Um, under the book of Isaiah, these were the prophets that were included in the minor prophets were included in the major prophets. What I'm trying to say is Codex Vaticanus does that exact same thing here. And under Jeremiah, they include Baruch, Lamentations, and the Epistle of Jeremiah. They also include Daniel with the alternate ending, uh, Bell and the Dragon. They also include Judith, Tobit, and Esther with additions. So next. Uh, next is Codex Claramontanus, 300-350 A.D. He includes Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, 1st and 2nd Maccabees. 4 Maccabees is, um, let's see, modern. Okay, so there's none that affirms 4 Maccabees in the no. uh, the modern canon today, which uh, Codex Claramontanus did. Uh, Judith Tobit, the Epistle of Barnabas, which is one of my favorite uh, I guess, extra-biblical list. 
Um, I, I think it could be argued that maybe even Epistle Barnabas was uh, was canonical or was considered canonical, but that's a really good exposition of the Old Testament law to a maybe even first century Christian. So that's a, that's a really interesting read for anybody that hasn't read that yet. Uh, Shepherd of Hermas, Acts of Paul, and then the Revelation of Peter, they also affirmed. Uh, Tyler, yeah. Uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I remember you guys talking about th three Maccabees or third Maccabees. Uh, who accepts that? Is that I believe, Orthodox? nope, I believe that's Eastern Orthodox that would Eastern accept third Maccabees. I could be wrong on that. If Sherman was here, he could help me clarify that. But okay. I'm pretty sure that Rome uh, includes first and second Maccabees, but reject third and fourth. And it's the Eastern Orthodox that includes all of the Maccabees. I think that's what Matt said. Okay. All right, cool. All right, next. Yep. Next is Eusebius. So Eusebius is only New Testament. But what's interesting is he does the exact same thing. Uh, that origin does. He disputes James, Second Peter, Second and Third John. He also disputes Jude and Revelation. Uh, spurious books. Now, this this list is really interesting to me because he includes us. Uh, like the spurious books are the pseudepigrapha, so to say. These were books that were probably not written by the people that claimed to write them. Okay, or, or that claimed that they were written by. Uh, the heretical books would include the what they would call the apocryphal books or, or Gnostic Gospels, right? These would include the Gnostic writings and, and, and things of that nature. And so, like I said, what's interesting is that uh, he puts James, Jude, Second Peter, Second John, Third John, and the book of Revelation as a disputable book, which means not all the church uh, at that time accepted these books as canonical or inspired scripture. Next. All right, Codex Sinaiticus. Uh, it includes Wisdom of Solomon, Sirach, Tobit, Judith, 1st Maccabees, 4 Maccabees, the Epistle of Barnabas, and the Shepherd of Hermas. Next. All right. Uh, Catechesis 4 by Ciro. He includes Baruch, the Epistle of Jeremiah, Daniel with the ending. Uh, so what's interesting there, Dell, I saw you go into that. 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st Kings, and 2nd Kings. Normally, they were classified as first kingdoms and second kingdoms, right? So even though we recognize them as four books, the early church actually recognized them as two and sometimes even one book labeled the book of the kingdoms. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's what that is. Gotcha. Um, but yep, they included Baruch, the epistle of Jeremiah, and Daniel with the ending. And normally Baruch, for those who don't know, is normally included with Jeremiah since I think Baruch was the scribe of Jeremiah. Uh, yes. If I'm not mistaken, he's actually mentioned in the, uh, not Jeremiah's epistle, but just Jeremiah that we have today, the prophet Jeremiah. Uh, right, Baruch yeah. mentioned. Okay. Yes, yeah. All right, next. Uh, Hillary included uh, the epistle of Jeremiah, so the words of the days of Esdras, which uh, wouldn't, if you want to click that little up to at the very top. Esdras, okay. Yep. That guy may refer to Esdras A or Esdras B, which is Nehemiah and Ezra. They really don't know that clue that could include uh third and fourth Ezra or uh first Esdras and second Esdras. Uh, it gets kind of confusing there, but they really don't know exactly what uh Hillary meant by words of the days of Esdras. That could mean a, a lot of different things. Uh, the listed without unanimous consent. Now, this is an interesting category because what they're saying what he what hillary's saying here is that with tobit and judith again some christians accepted these 
others did not. And so there's been a disputation among Christians about these specific books. We'll do one more and then I'll I'll break it down for why I showed the or Dale, why you showed the audience this and why I was uh, wanting to go over it. Okay. So the next one is Momsen's list and Momsen includes Solomon, which is probably wisdom of Solomon, uh, Jeremiah, or I'm sorry, uh, Judith and first and second Maccabees. And what's omitted here is Ezra, Nehemiah, Lamentations, Hebrews, James, and Jude. Though the way uh, Momsen, and, and this was a council, so back in 360 to 365 AD, this was a council. Mm -hmm. And they, um, I, a matter of fact, it wasn't even an ecumenical council. It was more of a regional council. And the wording here is what gets uh, people is that did he mean whenever he says Solomon, did he mean Proverbs? Did he mean wisdom of Solomon? We, we really don't know because of the way that he worded or, or they worded that, I should say. So, Dell, if you want to go ahead and exit out and, and stop sharing your screen, that, that's good. The whole point I'm trying to make here, guys, is that and, and we heard uh, and, and no disrespect to Matt, like I, I enjoyed having Matt. I hope I have him back on. Um, but if we're going if we're going to appeal to the early Christians, what we have to take into consideration is that the only thing we can appeal to is the canon list that were left by the early Christians and what they said about these books, right? We see, I think I see, I can't speak for everybody but myself, there's not an agreement here by any stretch of the imagination. They all differ, which means it tells me there's a subject, there, there's this subjectivity uh, element to this entire process that really needs to be brought to the forefront of the conversation before we start saying things like, well, the Holy Spirit's just going to tell his people and reveal to his people what the canon is. The fact of the matter is, guys, he hasn't. And if we're just going to say that, well, these people just might not be true believers. Well, Athanasius was. I mean, I think we would all agree that Athanasius was. Augustine was. I think we would all agree that. I, I mean, the list goes on, right? And so, real quick, just, go yeah, go ahead. If you have like this is your like established speech, right? So I don't want to interrupt, but like I'll I'll just throw. No, I'm just coming up with this off the top. So go ahead. Okay, okay. So I just want to interject and say like what that's not what I got from looking at the those lists, which it's an amazing website by the way. So I'm glad you taught me about it. But yeah, um, I'm amazed at the amount of books that are the same. There's only like a few you know like four or something like that on each list that's controversial so like yeah i was gonna say i was really struck by the consensus here like it, it seems to me like what we mean by scripture isn't holistically monolithic but it is a lot more consistent than it would seem like it would be with the amount of variation that happened between the you know let's uh, let's say there's probably eight books mm -hmm. that aren't really consistently swayed one way or the other but it seems like there's a vast majority that are automatically granted and included there's and that feels like a lot more solid ground uh for somebody who might feel uncomfortable about the conversation that we just had and how we were kind of disagreeing it's not necessarily the disagreement that should make anybody feel unsettled you know what i mean mm -hmm. um yeah. we should feel really confident with the fact that this huge consensus was actually happening throughout and there are very limited books that are disputed so i feel better about that there is a core that has been um 
accepted throughout not only Judaism, but uh, Christianity and early Christianity as well. That's a fact of history that I, I think we've seen. And so the point, I guess, that I was really trying to hit at was because like you guys, I saw that. And, you know, I, I agree with that statement. But the fact of the matter is, you know, that's not all they affirmed, right? They would affirm different books as well. And so my question is, what do we do with these books? What do we do with these books that are disputed that some affirm as canon, some don't? And, and, and we can get into the weeds of that. But I guess I'll just say this and then I'll let you guys comment and then we can end it. But it's what I reiterated at the very beginning and, and just what you guys have reiterated now is that don't be worried about it. You know, this isn't a make or break deal. You're not going to go to hell just because you rejected the wisdom of Solomon read the wisdom of Solomon. Don't be afraid of these books, right? That's the point that I want to try to make and, and to show that, look, there are some early Christians that accepted these books as canonical. And so don't shy away from them. If anything, what we should do as seekers, as real seekers of the truth is to examine the evidence. If it leads you away from Christ, more power to you, throw the book in the garbage and never lead it again. But the thing that I've experienced, the thing that I've found while reading the Apocrypha is that if anything, it's brought me closer to Christ, period, end of subject. And if that's the thing that we want to call inspired, I, I believe if something brings you closer to God, it is definitely profitable by or for the man of God, for wisdom, correction, whatever. If it brings you closer to Christ, and I want to testify that some of these books have done that for me. They might not do that to everybody, which might be a reason why some people don't consider them expired. But all I'm trying to say is, and then I'll hand it over to you guys, is that don't shy away from these books. Don't be afraid of them by any stretch. Examine them. Look at them if you, if you feel led to. If not, then don't worry about it. But if you feel led to and you're seeking truth, I almost guarantee, I'm like 99% sure these books will benefit you more than they will harm you. Josh, is there anything that you would like to add? Um, I just, just that I, I now feel uh, compelled to get a, a Catholic Canon Bible and a, a study Bible from the Eastern church, just so that I can have in hand copies of these different books that I've, I've read PDFs on Google of each of them probably at least once. Uh, but I just, I, I now feel a, a, a desire to, to have them in hand in a way that I didn't before. And so I feel, Good. I feel like this discussion made me like, I don't know if I would say more in love with scripture. Cause I feel like that's a hard thing to say, but <laughs> it's, a, it feels like I want to say that. <laughs> As they give you a new angle to view scripture or a new set of lenses, maybe to view scripture yeah. with. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, and one other thing that I wanted to say, uh, um, we have a comment here. Um, yeah. Did he say God hasn't revealed what the scriptures are? No. What was said was that there wasn't a single and monolithic consensus about which canon is complete, which is uh, uh, universally accepted throughout all Christian history by all traditions, right? Like that's not, right. we don't have a singular uh, uh, monolithic consensus of a closed canon. What we have is 
like we said just a moment ago, and Dale and I were greatly comforted by this remarkable swath of all of these core books that are, in fact, that consensus. But then there are these lingering spare change kind of books that we don't really know what exactly to do with. Um, and uh, as, let's say, somebody who grew up with and inherited the Protestant tradition, uh, that doesn't make special emphasis of asking the kind of questions we've been asking tonight. I feel very privileged to have friends like Tyler who are uh, weird and obsessive over topics that most people don't do. And so this is a really great conversation for me, like I said, to desire something that I don't have in hand that would be terribly useful in a way that I didn't think it would be prior to having this conversation. Uh, I also want to say that I am beyond pleased that Sherman got to show up even for just a few moments. Uh, I was really impressed with Matt. Uh, he's got a really great uh, uh, countenance. He was very calm. He was very collected and very prepared. Uh, I really like that a whole lot. Um, and, and he really seemed to be, um, you know, like confident and firm in the tradition that he's inherited. Uh, and, and that's, that's something that I always find admirable. And so this has been a really great, really great discussion. I really enjoyed this a whole lot. So Dale, um, real quick, I was just, so if, if on biblecanon.org, if you go and look at the disputed books, it actually lists third Maccabees as ortho orthodox deuterocanonical. And so I guess they would not accept, uh, third Maccabees as canonical, but deuterocanonical, along with Psalm 151. And so what's interesting, too, on that disputed books, this is a list of books that have been included in the canon at one point in time in Christian history or another. And I think it's really interesting that not only, like, the Didache is on here, the Apocalypse of Peter, the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, let's see, the Gospel of the Hebrews, four Maccabees, the Epistle of Barnabas, yeah, I, I really, for those who don't know, I really, really like the Epistle of Barnabas. Go read the Epistle of Barnabas, not the Gospel of Barnabas, that's nonsense. The Epistle of Barnabas, go check out the Epistle of Barnabas. I, it, man, I wish he was a sponsor, because he would sponsor this show, because I'm in love with that, with that letter so much. Not the letter would sponsor the show, but Barnabas himself. Like, I can't wait to talk to that guy in heaven. <laughs> like, bro, did you write the epistle of Barnabas? Like, please tell me you did because it's so good. It's so good. And I think that's because I'm into typology, right? I love typology. Mm -hmm. And that's what the epistle of Barnabas does. It breaks down the laws of the Old Testament, the sacrifice rituals that they did and puts them in a way that they not only represent Christ, but in the way that the first and early Christians would understand the law of Moses, like Gentiles would understand the law of Moses in a, in a more complete and uh, I guess more full. And I want to say fuller. I don't know if that's a word or not, but a more full way since Christ had came. That's what the epistle of Barnabas does. And so I, I, I love it. I can't recommend it both, but Dale, Dale, what did you think of the conversation? I know this is kind of new, um, new waters for you to wade in, maybe, um, that you haven't did much study on it. So what did you think overall? Yeah, so like, I guess I would say it's it's old for me. So like, okay. it's, so, it's so old, I've forgotten a lot. Um, there are also gotcha. a lot of aspects that were new, definitely, as well. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, I got into the textual criticism, issues of can canonis, uh, the what's the word, canonicity of scripture. Yeah. Um, probably in like, 
I don't know, back when I was a Christian, before I lost my faith, 2008, 2009, okay. because I was a King James version only, onlyist, right? So uh, I had to get into all these issues, hardcore, understand um, all of these things at that time. And I haven't gotten into it since, since I lost the knee. But yeah, I guess, um, so I don't, I don't feel compelled to get a Catholic Bible and stuff like that. Uh, I agree 100% with Tyler that you don't need, you don't need to be afraid of reading these documents. They're historical documents, and they can be edifying in that sort of thing. But I, I would want to be hesitant on you know don't read them devotionally or as though they are scripture until we confirm that they are indeed scripture type deal, right? So yeah, um, that's the way I kind of go. So like the way I would go is like, look, we've got these great. There are so many books of the Old and New Testament that are confirmed. Everyone agrees, right? Everyone agrees that the Protestant Old Testament are the inspired books at this point. And we, we saw the amazing, um, uh, the old lists where they confirm so many of those books, even if there's like one or two controversial ones. Well, they, all Catholics, Orthodox, and that sort of thing officially accept the 39 books that we have today in the Old Testament. So start with that. And then use that to evaluate these other texts. Do the, are there any contradictions or anything that we can use? You know, and let Scripture interpret Scripture. Um, so yeah, it, that's basically the same advice I would do, even with disputed passages within certain texts. Right, like oh, the the Gospel of Mark, the ending was that a part of the original document or not? Kind of thing well it's disputed so okay use the rest of the gospel and the other gospels does it is it contradictory with that or not um and then you can decide i i think it's an inspired part even if it wasn't a part of the original it's in there now and therefore it's inspired so yeah that that's kind of my where i'm a little bit weird is like i i think that all of the texts, if we don't even have to say that God um, preserved it perfectly inerrantly, right? So I'm perfectly happy to say the King James Version has minor error, scribal errors in it and stuff like that. But I still think that's inspired because for a lot of the English people in the year 1769 or 1770, yeah. that was the only Bible the people had access to. So fundamentally, I know providentially that has to be an inspired word of God that they were reading. You know, they didn't need to learn Greek and learn that stuff and go back to the old manuscripts. I think God gives his inspired texts, even with scribal errors, not preserved 100% perfectly, but it's sufficient for every believer. And same with outside of King James, you know, NASB. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I kind of, I, with that solution, it doesn't matter to me. Was it, did they use the Septuagint or the Hebrew text? I think they're both inspired Old Testament words of God. So, it's the message. Opinion. It sounds like it's the message for you. You need to get the message Bible, Dale. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just oh, kidding. Oh, no, no. Well, don't do that. <laughs> I, I like the literal translations as best as possible, but no, it's no. the propositional content that needs to be the same, right? right? Not the, the word. And, and, and I think, you know, that's what, you know, given the fact, and Vulture, I'll get to your question here in just a second, but I think that's the thing that we all need to take away is given the textual variants, given where the manuscripts and, and the, the traditions actually do differ because there's different there's differences period in the subject it doesn't change the fundamental doctrine that jesus christ died rose from the dead and if you place your faith in him you will be saved period in the subject right it doesn't change that message and so vulture you ask um 
How do you know it's nonsense referring uh, to the gospel of Barnabas? Two reasons, namely. One is because it's dated not only to medieval times, but very, 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 very late, uh, 14th to 17th century. Uh, there's no early traditions of this. It's not mentioned in any of the texts of uh, the early fathers or anywhere down to the time of the 14th and 17th century. Second reason, it contradicts blatant scripture, period. I mean, it, it just does. And so I could go further into that. I don't have the text pulled up. I don't have specific quotes from that. But if you uh, if you want, shoot me an email, faithunaltered at gmail.com or completecenter at gmail.com, and I will be sure to get you those quotes if you are interested. But two main reasons. Um, it's dated late, extremely late. Uh, there's no references to it from the early church fathers or the apostles or anything like that. And uh, it contradicts scripture. So that's why I say it's nonsense. Which Anything else? Is that again? The gospel of Barnabas. Oh, okay, okay. Not to be confused with the epistle of Barnabas, which I love. So just, just saying. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, guys. All right, y'all. It has been absolute blast. I love these conversations. We moved it to, well, we didn't really move it. We, we decided to do this on Saturday night. So this has been our Saturday night Sabbath of the Complete Sinner's Guide. So there's some three S's for you. But, uh, I guys, I, I love doing, I love talking about this. Um, hopefully we can get David on uh, soon to talk about the New Testament. And I know we dived into the Old Testament tonight. And so definitely, if you haven't yet checked out their uh, video, Dale was on with them uh, last night. They were talking about uh, Solo Scriptura. Dale, before you leave, can you just give us a, just a summary of what was discussed last night on their channel? Actually, guys, I have to, I, I have to Go hop ahead, off. Bob. Um, I, I gotta get off cause my, I gotta get my kitchen back to the family, but love okay. you guys. This was fantastic. Love you too, bro. Right on. Yeah. La last night it was a great, great conversation. Uh, namely cause I was out of it. I was just the host, but, uh, we had a great panel. Um, you know, they just, dis they discover, they discuss pretty much everything in terms of the breadth of the Sola Scriptura issue, which I know you didn't want to cover that night, but you know, they covered the issue of what, what's the relationship between scripture versus, tradition and it's not when we say tradition that doesn't necessarily mean oral tradition right uh tradition could apply to the written documents and even right. scripture in some sense right so right we learned about that um we learned about you know the different positions prima scriptura and versus uh sola scriptura and stuff like that we learned about uh the perspicuity of scripture so the the fact that the scripture is must be clear about the essential doctrines and yeah. you know we kind of brought up the counter example of well, what about baptism some people think it's essential to be saved others not so we discussed a lot about that what about whenever peter said paul some of paul's writings are hard to understand <laughs> yeah well they well they answered that they they said okay. but th those are about secondary doctrines so that can be confusing but yeah. it's the essential how you get saved that has to be clear was their gotcha. answer um what else we we also covered a little bit about the preservation of the text cool um you know so lower textual criticism and i kind of asked what's the role of oral tradition in the preservation of the text okay. um nice. and we had a couple of questions stupid questions from pine creek doug but uh, oh he was there <laughs> he showed up towards the end yeah oh yeah. <laughs> man have you been invited to come back on his show for those who don't know dale went on pine creek's channel and just completely destroyed this dude so I, I, <laughs> good job dale 
Yeah, he, uh, I, I have not. Uh, again, I'm, oh. I'm not anxious to go out. I, I think it's very yeah. unlikely. He, he wasn't impressed with me, so I, I think it's in like unlikely he'd invite me back. But uh, Well, I was impressed with what you had said to Doug, and I really think, and I think it shows on the video that you stumped him in a couple spots. So maybe that's not why, or maybe that's why he's not too excited to have you back. I don't know, but... But we I love you, so. Pine Creek, and and you're always welcome. So. I, I still like you too. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. But all right, brother Dell, I'm going to hop off here. I've got uh, stuff to do, so go check out the discussion we had last night on uh, on Faith Unaltered. Go check out Pine Creek Doug versus Dell, the real seeker. And y'all subscribe, subscribe, subscribe to our channels. Like the, we can't do it without you. We're completely listener dependent. So if you like the content that was talked about tonight please give us a thumbs up. Even if you're already subscribed to the channel and you haven't gave a thumbs up, there's six people watching right now and only one thumbs up. So come on, hit, hit us up. It helps us out. It really does. You might not think it does, but it gets the algorithms working in our favor and it produces it. It helps us to get out to more people rather than just me sharing it or Dale or well, Dale don't have social media, but, but Josh or, or, or David or people like that, it, it, it gets us out there and that's the goal, man, is to really to influence as many people as the Holy Spirit will allow. Like I said before at the beginning of the show, I think we all, uh, Dale, Josh, David, myself, I think we're all doing good work here. And 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 I and I pray, I pray that if it that it's glorifying to God. If it's not, Lord, then then stop this from happening because we only want to do what glorifies you, and and, and to edify. Uh, your children in, in, in not only them, but ourselves as well. So help us to, you know, help us to do that. But y'all, I love you guys. Dell, I love you, brother. And it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We will see you next time. I don't know when another CSG episode, we do these periodically since uh, my main project is faith on altar now. And so, but I had a blast and I missed it and I need to be doing this more often, but until we see you next time, ladies and gentlemen, Good night, God bless, and stay 